You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This is the end. soldier since I was 19 and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins. They gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command terminate terminate with extreme prejudice my orders say i'm not supposed to know where i'm taking this boat so i don't but one look at you and i know it's going to be hot That isn't true. Could we uh, talk to Colonel Kurtz? You don't talk to the Colonel. Uh, well, well, you listen to him. Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks. To collect the bill.
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Professor Rich Edwards. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm very excited to be here today. And at the onset, I'm reminded of something that Willard said about Colonel Kurtz, that there is no way to tell his story without telling my own. And if his story really is a confession, then so is mine. Also joining us this week is Mr. Paul Zimmerman. There's mines over there. There's mines over there. And watch out. Those goddamn monkeys bite. This week, we are discussing Apocalypse Now. Released in 1979, the film took a while to come to fruition. It was poised to be one of the biggest disasters in director Francis Ford Coppola's career. But surprise, it ended up being one of the most poignant films about the Vietnam experience that has ever been made. Of course, we're going to be talking a lot about the plot and definitely getting into spoilers. If you haven't seen the film, the Redux version of the film... The almost five-hour rough cut of the film, the documentary about making the film, or any of the multiple parodies of the film that it has inspired over the years, you've had your chance. Now we're going to get into the discussion. And Rich, I want to know, when was the first time you saw Apocalypse Now? I saw it about 30 years ago when I was in college for the first time, so about seven to eight years after it was released in the theaters. And it really had a big impression on me. I really loved this film. And I ended up writing my senior thesis in college on Apocalypse Now, comparing it to Joseph Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness. And I really have always felt that this film is really one of those texts that you can continue to return to again and again. How about you, Paul? I was fascinated from when I first heard about it, and I'm old enough that I actually saw it in the first theatrical run. Um, For those that don't know, it was first opened in just three theaters in 70 millimeter six tracks surround sound and the three cities were los angeles toronto and new york i lived in detroit at the time so toronto made the most sense it was about a four-hour trip for me i hitched a ride with some punk bands that were going to be up there playing under the guise that i was going to do some press for them and then one afternoon while they were getting ready for their show i snuck off to what was the university theater and it's interesting in toronto because the film played there for 52 weeks 52 so, wow. yeah, I went, and it was a high ticket. I think it was around $5. It was not reserved seats, not like specific seats, but you could buy the seats ahead of time, or the ticket ahead of time. And I was just blown away. I mean, it was the most immersive experience I've probably ever had. At this time, there was no opening credits or closing credits. Instead, what they would do was they'd leave the sound trickling through the six track of the, the rain and the horror. And then the lights would slowly come up, and everyone was handed a a kind of a brochure, like a little credit booklet that was kind of like a little collectible, too. Not unlike what they just did for uh, Hateful Eight. But at any rate, I loved it from the first time, and it's it's something I go back to all the time. Now, I don't want to make you guys hate me with envy, but I saw this one for the first time in the optimal format, which was in my folks' basement on VHS. So, <laughs> in your face, suckers. This I hope it was crappy yeah. speakers to boot. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it was even a stereo television, I don't even think so. It was just coming out of the one speaker there in the front, you know. So, that that's how I saw it the first time. And despite that, I still ended up loving it. I 
was kind of afraid of this movie for a lot of years because of the poster image, that poster of, of Colonel Kurtz where it's kind of like, I know it's rain on his face. I know that now, but when I saw that poster image the first time, I thought his face was kind of melting. And here I am a big fan of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And actually the thing that kept coming back to me was this, uh, the, the end scene of the sword and the sorcerer by Albert Pune and this, the sorcerer kind of coming out of the muck and his face looking like that. So once I, I got past my fear of Marlon Brando's face in the poster, I was able to enjoy the film. And of course, seeing it again years later at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, seeing it in 70 millimeter, I don't remember if it had credits or not, but that's when it finally took hold of me. So it took a long time, you know, to finally be able to say like, okay, yeah, this movie is pretty fantastic. It looked pretty good. You know, I enjoyed it on the two VHS tape set that you know you would rent from blockbuster but it took the theatrical experience to really uh let me appreciate it in toto so on the if it was two tapes where did they break it up do you remember oh no i don't remember though it's funny (laughs) (laughs) i can't get away from this i was watching the dvd version of the what did they call it the complete dossier or something they had a break they had two dvds and you broke in the dvds and i was like i haven't had to go change a dvd since the last lord of the rings came out this is ridiculous yeah i was also a huge uh brando fan still am so i was really looking forward to it for that too also huge huge fan of the godfather one and two of course so you know a lot of people complained that they didn't like the uh, the 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 Brando muttering on for the last 20 minutes of the film, but I didn't have a real problem with it. And, you know, he's always a guy who's paused a lot. And even though you had pauses, you could drive trucks through practically. I I enjoyed even that. As I mentioned, it was at only at three theaters originally in North America. When it came out a few months later, it had end credits. And these were now not the 70 millimeter, excuse me, 70 millimeter printing anymore. It was 35. And one of the things Coppola had shot that he hadn't used was he blew up the Kurtz compound at the end. And at the time, the guy who was doing the demolition on the film said he had never done anything like that, even when he was in Vietnam. So it was the biggest, probably Hollywood explosions of all time. He ends up not using them in the, the main part of the film, but he used them over the end credits. But then, what a dope, he solarized the pictures so they had this kind of freaky drug haze thing to them when it was already like the most impressive explosions of all time. So that was interesting. And that was, like I said, that was for the uh, the mass release, the 35 millimeter. When I hear Paul and you talking about this film, Mike, it reminds me that there's so many different angles we can use to get into the fandom about this film. But all of it was very carefully crafted by Coppola from the very beginning. This is a cult film given a blockbuster treatment and that has entered into the Hall of Fame of fandom because it really was this movie that isn't conventional and yet it was coming on the heels of two of Coppola's greatest masterworks, Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. And you saw a cinematic spectacle made by an outsider filmmaker, because that's how I tend to think of Coppola, filming up there in his Zoetrope studios up in San Francisco. This is not necessarily a Hollywood guy making his own type of, by today's standards, it would be a you know, $200 million film that was almost the equivalent of like a student art project. And I think that's why it has all of these fascinating angles and why we keep returning to it is 
there's just this quality to this film that even for all of its vastness as a film experience, it really is on another level just a cult film. Yeah, it really is a unique, unique film. And, and to contextualize a little bit, you got to remember when this was first announced, nobody had really done a Vietnam film except for John Wayne's oh so bad Green Berets. So by the time he shot this and then actually edited it, three years took to get the whole thing done. So by then, we already had seen Boys from Company C and Deer Hunter and Deer Hunter. Hunter had won the Oscar. So everyone was really, really curious about what his take was going to be. And in its own way, it's not very realistic about Vietnam. I have a fascination with talking to Vietnam vets about all the movies to see which ones got it right and which ones didn't. And they all agree that Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now are fairy tales. The only one they ever really liked that really impacted them would be something like Platoon. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the history of this film because obviously, you know, we, we, talk in, in Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about the making of the film, that there was the, the Wells version that never necessarily came to fruition. But then, even before Coppola picks up the camera in you know late 1976, I think he went over to the Philippines in early 76, and is there rewriting the script. But that script had been around since, what, 1969, from John Milius, and it's such an interesting lineage, and, and it's it, Milius is always that just bizarre wild card when it comes to that group of young filmmakers, where it's just like, where does this guy fit in? Like he is just so loud and boisterous, and just so like right wing a lot of times, and it's just like, how does this guy fit in with these bearded hippie type dudes like Lucas and Coppola, and and eventually like De Palma, and then somewhere down the line Spielberg, and Millius just sticks out like a sore thumb. But it's fantastic that he's there in the mix and just kind of stirring things up with his his uh, different attitude than all these guys. I always think it's very fascinating to talk about the Milius script and to think about who the first director was that was really ever attached to Apocalypse Now, and it was George Lucas. And when George Lucas read the Milius script in the early 70s, around the time that he was doing American Graffiti, he was planning on shooting Apocalypse Now with the Milius script as a pseudo-documentary inside Vietnam while the war was still going on. And right about the time that he was planning to uh, adopt this as his project after American Graffiti, Lucas got distracted by a small film that he was releasing in 1977. Um, it's not, not coming to mind right now. I'll, I'll think about it in a second. Uh, um, Star Wars. So Star Wars actually interrupted his desire to do Apocalypse Now. And I still think that the amazing success of Star Wars permanently tabled this idea for uh, Lucas. But for people who are fans of the projection booth, I'm sure many of them know that Lucas and Coppola were friends going way, way back uh, to my favorite, one of my favorite stories that Lucas, you know, did documentary film work on the Coppola film, The Rain People, in the late 1960s. And this was a film that when Coppola was looking for scripts to do after uh, Godfather 2, he asked Lucas's permission if he could have it. And there's a story that I've read in several of the books on uh, the history of the relationship between Lucas and Coppola that said there was a lot of friction around Coppola uh, taking over this uh, script. And I don't know all the reasons why, but it becomes interesting to think about how that single script you bring up, the Milius script, in one 
person's hand, it could have been shot as a documentary. And then in Coppola's hand, it's shot as this, as Paul, you know, says, and I agree with it, more as a Vietnam uh, War fantasy. Milius is an interesting guy, too. Great writer. But he's, you know, basically an armchair general, too. He's the guy, the most he had in common with those other guys at that period was probably that they didn't want to go to Vietnam. I mean, I think Milius is actually asthmatic, and that's what got him out of, it got him a deferment in the war. And you've got these guys that really didn't know anything about war. Um, the only guy that knew about war was the original guy who was going to play the Martin Sheen part, and that's Harvey Keitel. Now, Harvey Keitel lasted all of about a week, and in one report... They had left him up the river to go shoot another part, and he was on a walkie-talkie. And this is interesting, too. Apparently, nobody found out that Harvey Keitel has a total panic attack around insects. He can't stand be around insects. So, yeah, I think the Philippines would be a great place for him. So, apparently, he was with this little uh, bee squad, and they hadn't, in a timely manner, picked him up. And he was on the uh, walkie-talkie screaming, you wouldn't do this to Marlon Brando. You wouldn't do this to Marlon Brando, goddammit. And within a few days, he was out and Sheen was in. Milius always brings just that that dramatic flair to things that I love so much. I mean, of course, you know, the of, the pedigree of the Indianapolis speech is always up for debate. Like, who actually wrote the Indianapolis speech? But I can see that coming from Milius's pen. You know, he just has such a, a, a poetry about the way that he writes things. You know, he is that warrior poet that they describe Kurtz as being, to me at least. He just has that kind of, it's almost like this internal struggle, it seems like to me, between the poet and the bloodlust and he just great art seems to come from that when he was writing the script and he was starting to think about Kilgore's uh, beach scenes and came up with the idea that the ride of the Valkyries would be the, the uh, soundtrack, Wagner's uh, impressive score during the helicopter sequence, he says in one of his interviews that he almost considered not putting that in the script because it was so obvious. So here's a guy, even when he's typing at his typewriter, he was hearing Ride of the Valkyries. And I think that says a lot about the DNA he put into the script that then a master craftsman at the height of his cinematic powers, uh, Francis Ford Coppola and his incredible team were able to then mine that script for additional visual and sonic resonances. Yeah, it's interesting, too, with the, uh, the Martin Sheen character, because he's purported to be this badass, but the only thing he kills in the first two hours is like a bottle of cognac and a mirror. I mean, he's really kind of a, you kind of just got to take it on his word that he's a badass. And speaking of weird things about Charlie Sheen, or Martin Sheen, this has nothing to do with anything. What was up with that Band-Aid? Any theories? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it comes it goes there's a scar there's not a scar it's it's a continuity nightmare yeah i don't know why you would have done that i i, I don't know yeah that was kind of crazy that one really caught me this last time and especially watching the five-hour version i was just like oh okay there yeah there it is there it is oh yeah for sure it's in the french plantation scene okay i'm seeing that now you are right about that, Paul, that there's only a line of dialogue to kind of prove Martin Sheen's badassery, because at one point he says he killed six people, and you have to take your word for it, and you start to say, well, this is why he's being summoned on this mission to go attack Kurtz. But I thought what was so amazing, you know, when you think about this as a war picture, is how it really is mostly 
a journey following almost like a classic detective structure. The character of Willard, played by Martin Sheen, you know, spends pretty much in the theatrically 70 millimeter release version, you know, 70 percent of the script on a boat going up a river and thinking about this person he's about to meet. And it doesn't have a lot of traditional war scenes outside of those iconic moments with Kilgore. A lot of it plays with the terror and the temptations of the war uh, scenario, but it's not ever really directly shown. It's often implied with sequences like one of my favorite sequences, the mango and the tiger sequence, which is just, I think, the way that brings that added commentary in that Coppola was supplying in, the, in, in his uh, approach to this script. When you guys saw it on the big screen, at the point of when the tiger jumps out, when I first saw it, I've never seen an audience jump that high. And it's partly because, you know, in a horror film, you're gearing yourself up for a shock. But in that film, you weren't really, you know, bracing yourself. So when that tiger came out, I mean, they had left their seats. Did you find the same thing on the big screen? Definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've had the great fortune to see this in 70 millimeter. And this is like why I'm, you know, when Mike tells his story about watching it on horrible VHS tape. I just feel sad. But yes, this was the first film ever mixed in uh, Dolby Surround. And so part of what starts in the opening shot, where it really starts to play with something that's very conventional now, nearly 40 years later, with having sound effects behind your head in rear surround speakers. I think one of the reasons the audience jumped so high is that was a new technique. It really, uh, Merch talks about it, uh, Walter Merch, the sound designer, that he really was trying to push the realism of the sounds. For people who aren't familiar with this film's sound design, listen to just the machine guns. I mean, these sound different than any other film. Like, this was a turning point where it didn't just sound like a Hollywood soundtrack of war sounds, Milius and his amazing team of sound designers really captured a different level of realism that we've lived with now since this film. But this was that type of turning point. And the tiger, I think, had a realistic growl that just, again, didn't sound like they were just playing whatever was on a can tape in the sound booth. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, you know, Q51 from Nature Sounds, uh, the the record. I'd read also where other guys talk about that the uh, Michael Hare uh, narration has kind of a pulpy sound to it. It makes it almost like this is a private eye going after this missing guy or something. But I remember the first time I saw it, even I thought the narration was probably the best written unnecessary narration of all time. I mean, it's really good and it really doesn't add hardly anything. I mean, the, the one that bugged me right at the beginning was Martin Sheen takes out this picture of a woman and then he puts his cigarette butt out on her face. That pretty much tells you all you need to know. But instead, we have some ham-handed you know, narration that follows right. Yeah, what's he say? Something about like uh, sushi, cold fish. That's what my wife used to call me. Is that, is that what it was? <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking Thanks. of other unnecessary narration. But what I like about the hair narration, and Michael Hare wrote a very important book called Dispatches. That was a journalistic uh, telling of the Vietnam War, was that even if it wasn't necessary in terms of advancing the plot, it was really, I think, important for establishing Willard Martin Sheen's frame of mind, because I am sucked in when he's on the boat and going through, especially the dossier, just how you're getting not only the 
sense of who Kurtz is. And maybe you never even get that, but you definitely get Willard's take on what going after Kurtz means to him. And to, to me, that's really the heart of this film. I haven't really seen anybody talk about this, but there's a bit of a uh, Charles Manson hangover to the whole film. There's the whole mm-hmm. thing about a guy who will you know, have a, a, the master and his murderous followers. You've got that, of course, but you've also got the scene on the boat where they're listening to the tape from home and they talk about the murders. And then you, you've also got, if you piece all that together with like uh, Dennis Hopper's nonsensical speeches some of those are kind of the roundabout way that manson used to talk to his followers too and in 1969 when milius first wrote this you know that would be very much on their mind because hollywood was scared shitless for a while just one thing i know i'm a little bit late to the party but uh, i wanted to go back to coppola a little bit here because we've talked about the godfather and the godfather too but we haven't talked about the conversation and the conversation to me that whole idea of Coppola is that he can do art and commerce. You know, the 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 Godfather is a very populist film. You know, it made huge box office. It got tons of awards. Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. There's nothing wrong with audiences loving it. Of course, that is fantastic, and it still holds up today. I still love that movie. But then he's able to switch gears and then make something like The Conversation, which is almost a pure art film to me, and just really plays with this whole idea of you know the sound and, and how stories are told and reinterpreted and all these things. So he's coming to the party with that ability to mix those two things together, which is where I think Apocalypse Now, in that kind of cult realm that we were talking about, that that's really why it plays so well between a blockbuster war film and a very, very artsy, uh, self-introspective type of journey up the river. I think he, you know, had come off of reinventing the gangster film. He probably thought he could reinvent you know, a war film and he comes very close to it. And I think he probably was very full. I've always been fascinated by these directors who have enormous successes and they give them pretty much all the rope they want to hang themselves. And it's funny to see what they do. So, you know, after Chimino does uh, the deer hunter, he does heaven's gate. And after taxi driver Scorsese does New York, New York. And after Bertolucci's, you know, finding all this fame and fortune, he does 1900. So it's always interesting to see what these dream films of theirs are. They're always much more ambitious than the something they've done before, and they're usually a mixed bag, too. For someone like Coppola, he really was making a film that was very much about the artifice of film. I mean, some of my favorite points in Apocalypse Now have no parallel in the Godfather films. There's no cameo of uh, Coppola uh, walking in with a film crew in The Godfather, but we have him walking in with a film crew in Apocalypse Now. We have no parallel in The Godfather films of an really almost like a complete raised eyebrow, almost parody of the theatricality of war with Colonel Kilgore played by Robert Duvall throwing playing cards on the dead bodies. And even if that's something that comes out of something that was a well-known Vietnam story. Coppola is playing it up for the theatricality of it, for the staginess. And, and, and the entire Kilgore moments, Duvall's iconic moments with the surfing and with the Riot of Valkyries, to me, was always about Coppola's commentary on how wars were being produced or a, one version of a war that he was experiencing was being 
produce like a Hollywood blockbuster, that it really you need a sound design, you need to have a staging, and that if the goal is to have your you know, moment where you need to have the person surfing on the surfboard, then Kilgore is like a director saying, you know, action, and he doesn't care because nothing's going to happen on his set. And so to me, there's this enormous self-consciousness in Coppola's dream film. And it also, I think, works in uh, with other artists like Camino and Scorsese that when they finally have free reign, their love of the film becomes this self-conscious explosion of constantly wanting to manipulate the very fabric and realism of film and seeing how far they can take it. And for Coppola, it was to the brink of madness and back again, the brink of bankruptcy and back again. When we talked a little bit earlier, Paul, you had mentioned just how much had been written about Apocalypse Now before you ever even stepped foot inside inside of that theater in Toronto. And this film just had ink like crazy because it was uh it, it like i said before it started in 1976 or earlier with the script but really coppola was announcing it and ventured into the philippines in 1976 and the movie didn't come out until 1979 and in the interim it was just rumor after rumor story after story and it just became this kind of feeding frenzy for journalists and there were just so many articles written about it after a while i got kind of got tired of reading them because it was just like apocalypse when apocalypse not apocalypse this. and it was just like okay guys we get it the now has yet to happen the now is waiting for three years and then when it happens is it going to be something but yes a lot of it was probably orchestrated by coppola but there were some things that weren't necessarily you know he didn't want a lot of stuff to get out of the camp especially martin sheen having a heart attack during the middle of filming you know the level of anticipation for this film was absolutely it was at a fever pitch it really was and there was no precedent for that much Inc. And the funny thing was, too, was Coppola had kept a pretty tight leash on it, or tight lid, excuse me. He had not that many people around that could be really reporting. So a lot of it was just rumors, a lot of it was speculation. To go back to Walter Murch for a second, he gets a real tip of the hat for not just this film, but we should mention what a wonderful job he did uh, re-putting Orson Welles' wishes back into Touch of Evil. He, he remixed yes. that whole thing. And I heard for very little money, he just did it out of the love of film. And it's, it's a better film, if that was possible. It is even better now since he fixed it. Yeah, Merch is a master craftsman that I don't think he you could ever say – as many nice things about the guy is that you know he he just has this tremendous ability you know to put things together to you know take these I know that he was what one of five uh, editors of the film of of cutting the film and then one of many sound designers I mean he really had his fingers in a lot of stuff when it came to the the, the back end of this film and making it and shaping it into what it was because it could have been a lot different to me the part where you really want to celebrate the artistry of walter Murch is to recognize that you know that the, the famous phrase about apocalypse now is that coppola exposed a million feet of film which turns out to be about 230 hours of film and the released film is two and a half hours so that's a hundred to one shooting ratio. That's even excessive by Stanley Kubrick standards. Merch took two and a half years with, you know, a lot of advice from Coppola and other 
editors, but to really take 230 hours and to put it into this masterful two and a half hour framework is nothing short of miraculous because this is not a mess of a film. This is a film that still holds up. And I actually think that this film is past all of the news stories that we're starting to generate in 79, 80, and 81 around this film. You can watch it a little more uh, less as a any sort of production debacle now and just enjoy it for what it is in both its original version, uh, which is my preference, or the expanded redux, which we'll talk about later, but that has I have issues with. But a lot of credit has to go to merch. I don't think that this film would be the masterwork, and I absolutely in my mind believe this is a cinematic masterwork uh, without Walter Murch's presence. It just would not be what it is. In talk about playing things loud, um, I, as a personal aside, I remember Apocalypse Now when it came out on video. It was one of the first ones in the 80s where we would take something home, and it's always been mixed in with me and my punk rock memories because we would tend to come back from a, a show or a bar or whatever, and we would, with the magic of video, you could go right to a certain scene, which was a you know revolutionary idea. So the big four in our house that would always upset the neighbors was somewhere around 2 o'clock there would either be the helicopter raid on the village from Apocalypse Now, the last sequence from Excalibur, the, one of the transformation scenes from The Thing, or the uh, Russian roulette scene from Deer Hunter. Yeah, there was a lot of comparisons, of course, between Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now when it came out. And that was kind of one of those nice things about this era that we're talking about. Paul, you mentioned that it played 52 weeks in, in a theater. And this is the era of when things had a longer shelf life and played in theaters for longer because there wasn't home video to rely on. So reading something like I read an article uh, from Mother Jones and they were talking about, you know, Chimino's recent film, Deer Hunter, and then comparing it directly to Apocalypse Now. And I'm just like, yeah, this is kind of like that era where things could have that breathing room and be out there for a little bit longer of time. So it felt like there was more of a continuous dialogue as opposed to now where it's like almost like tweets or something where a movie will come out and if it doesn't do that well, it will disappear within a week or two weeks at most. And then within you know, a matter of months, it shows up on video or whatever. But it's nice that we had this more of a, a longer time with these films and we could grow to appreciate them a little more and it almost felt like they kind of helped the conversation when it came from talking about one film into another film and being able to draw those comparisons between these two epic vietnam films and right like rich was saying this thing is just big this is pre-cgi there's no miniatures there's everything is big the sound is big the action is big the explosions are big everything is just big 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 you can't imagine the film being any more bigger than it is well it's interesting because it's such a small story when you think about it when you boil it down like richard saying earlier it's a story of a guy going up a river to kill a man and that's what it boils down to and then it's just those adventures along the way and then the time on the boat that really bring the story there but the other thing that i think helps is what we've touched on already is that narration those sound effects, the sound design, and then the music to it. And it's just all of these things that were laid in afterwards and the crafting of the story through the editing that really help make Apocalypse Now what it is. There are so many ways that Coppola was doing different techniques in this film that it's 
fun to compare it again, like we did earlier, to a film like The Godfather, with in this type of film, Coppola was able to explore, say, rock music and use it very effectively. I can't really listen to the song I Can't Get No Satisfaction without visually in my mind seeing that moment in Apocalypse Now. And of course, Suzy Q always involves Bob Graham with some flares in his hands and some weird scenes with Playboy bunnies doing something with some uh, very phallic bullets. So part of it is this is what is so fascinating about the bigness of this film. This film gets into your unconscious. It gets into your imagination. It is big. I mean, it's an epic but a lot of it is just comes out of the sensory overload of these moments that are just that are just amazing and they stick to you. The other part about watching a film in the theater is and it's just such a shame that we just don't do this as much as a culture is when you see a great film in a theater, it sticks to your rib cage in a way that it just doesn't on a television set. And so this film was meant to really impale your heart. And when it does that, and when you bled for this film, it paid you back. This is the type of film I've been thinking about for 30 years, and not a minute of any of the time I've ever thought about this film is a wasted second of my life. This is that good a film. There's a website out there called One Perfect Shot that I, I love, and they will post certain images from film where it just is so well composed, or like sometimes animated gifs or you know tributes to films and stuff. And so many of the images, I mean, there's the phrase "every frame a painting," and that really is right there with Apocalypse Now. You know, you were talking about those Playboy bunnies, and immediately I'm thinking of that amazing shot of the one woman in the cowboy outfit going away from the camera towards one of the spotlights, and just how she blocks out the light and how it plays with us, and just the way that the light is kind of coming at us, then not coming at us and going back and forth from light to shadow. And there's just so many great things with that movie like that. And just the way even the use of the uh, scope lens takes all of those spotlights and stretches them out and it almost makes everything look like they're in a prison or something just because of the way that the anamorphic lens was used. Right, and also you get the great use of superimpositions that starts literally with the opening shot of the film. I mean, Martin Sheen's upside-down head is iconic in my brain. It is a brilliant shot, and then when you watch the gasoline fire ignite the trees, it's like, oh my God, so smart not to have opening credits on this film. This is a film that jumps right in, and it jumps right in with seven and a half minutes of literally nothing. And yet it's everything. I mean, that's what the genius of this whole thing is. This opening over the Doors music, the song, The End, but with the images of helicopter blades turning into Saigon hotel fans, turning into Willard's, you know, Dark Night of the Soul. It's just exquisite. I can watch that scene over and over again. It's a masterclass of every film technique, including one that's not used in today's blockbusters, the superimposition. It's just fantastic. It just makes me long for more movies like this. And, you know, again, not to bash on today's articles, but less movies like, you know, some of these new comic book films. I think we've had enough comic book films. Let's go back to cinematic genius for a while. It also serves as sort of like its own trailer or its own appetizer for what's going to come down the line. 
you get this beautiful imagery, you get the war, you get insanity, and it's all right there. And like you said, in the first seven minutes. I want to talk about that opening. It's very interesting to show this opening with the end going on. And I've always been curious, is this the end of the film that we're seeing over the beginning of the film? Is this the the strike on Kurtz's camp that we're seeing open this movie? I always thought it was the napalm shots. Where do you think, Rich? It sounds like you've studied it even yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, no, I am obsessed with this opening. To me, it's a prologue. It is meant to be, this is, this is Willard before even the MPs come into his hotel room. I think he could be having some sort of weird premeditation dreams of what's about to come. Because he couldn't possibly know already about the napalm assault that he'll witness with Kilgore unless he saw it on one of his earlier assassination missions. But I've always seen it as this timeless mythic moment. The, the, the movie opens in myth because you also have the head of the idol. And the head of the idol is juxtaposed to Sheen's head. And, I, and, and, and this is a film that will drop books like The Golden Bow on a, a nightstand in the final 20 minutes of the film. So I don't think it's a stretch to say the film intentionally is opening in the land of myth. It is opening to say what you're about to see, this is that overture that operas used to have. This is the moment that says, I am going to conjure up the conditions by which everything that you're going to see on the stage for the next two hours and 15 minutes is possible. And it is all the ideas boiled into a avant-garde visual track connected by Jim Morrison's abstract rock and roll lyrics that are evocative more than sensical, and it is almost like a Kenneth Anger film. It reminds me a lot of like Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. It is really just meant to be this moment to say after this ends, something approximating a, a film will start, but it's always going to be shot through with this subjective magic because you're not going to be able to necessarily believe everything, but the myth itself is true. Yeah, a really good overture to anything, to a play, to a movie, to any of this stuff, takes those themes that we are going to see, takes those those musical cues that we're going to hear. You know, you might hear the, the theme of Pontius Pilate being played within the first few moments of Jesus Christ Superstar. So you're going to get all of those things. So I can definitely see what you're talking about as far as this being that overture and taking all those ideas that we're going to experience later in the film and putting them in these first few minutes and giving us a taste of that. Talking about some of these um, musical cues, because they're actually in the script. The Susie Q is in the Coppola rewrite of the script from 75, and they mention the Doors specifically. They mention Wagner. I mean, that's all there in the script. And I wanted to mention, too, talking about the opening, it is so much different than especially the 1969 script, because in that one, it opens with a head coming out of the water that's covered with makeup, much like Sheen's does at the end of the movie. But this is how originally it opened, was his head comes out of the water, a different guy. And you see these soldiers all running around and they've got scalps on their belts and they've got, you know, shaved heads and all these other bizarre accoutrements. And they end up massacring all these uh, Viet Cong. And then one of them takes a flamethrower and the flamethrower stretches across the screen, excuse me, from left to right. And then the title comes up, Apocalypse Now. So we're talking about a very more pulpy version that this could have been in someone else's hands. No, I agree with that fully. I think that's, 
a fantastic comparison because the opening also creates the editing pattern that allows the loose narrative to follow to be coherent. I think he had to do something that alerted the audience to be patient that this was not going to be a traditional war film, that there was no, this isn't John Wayne and the Green Berets. It isn't even really the deer hunter. It really was going to be a journey. And for me, it's always a journey of self-discovery that is going to go to unexpected places. And that seven minute opening is almost like a plea of to tolerance of the audience to bear with me as I work this out. Green Beret gets picked on a lot. So I went and watched it again recently. <laughs> And, uh, uh, you know, I'm actually a fan of John Wayne, even the late period stuff like Big Jake and uh, the Shoot Us and stuff. But I went back and watched yeah. it again, and it's not as bad as they say. It's actually a lot, lot worse. I have to throw in real quick here, and this if we were writing a paper together, this would be a footnote. <laughs> but there was a fantastic film called Captain Milkshake that was uh, produced – during the Vietnam War, I want to say it was in 69 or 70, and what's very interesting is that that film was actually taken to Zoetrope, and they tried to get distribution through Zoetrope, and I remember the director telling me a story about him going in and talking with Coppola, and Coppola, like, getting barraged with phone calls from Paramount to do uh, The Godfather around then. And he was just like, Jesus Christ, I think just because I'm Italian that I'm going to do this goddamn mafia movie and blah, blah, blah. And this young kid sticks his head into the door and he was just like, Francis, I can't cut together this this scene with with uh, Robert du with Bobby Duvall and blah, blah, blah. And Francis just stops and he's like, well, do this, 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 like lays out this whole editing pattern. And then the guy realizes like a year later or whatever, when THX 1138 comes out, that that's what the movie was and that this kid was George Lucas who was in this thing. But Captain Milkshake is absolutely fantastic and it does this great thing where it's shot in color and black and white. The color stuff is the Vietnam stuff, the black and white is the home stuff. So it really takes that idea of what's reality and what's fake and flips it on its head. It's that the world, when he comes back to the world, which I keep talking about in Apocalypse Now, when he comes back to the States, things aren't as real as they were when he went to Vietnam. And that's where the world was very colorful. And that's where the excitement was and it's very interesting that it's almost like a precursor to Willard and Willard not being able to handle going back to the world that being able to go back to the black and white life that he wants to stay in this colorful world even though it could cost him his soul part of what your comments there reminded me of is something that I don't think gets enough credit for why this film is really pleasurable in the middle section, which is how carefully Coppola put together the cast that's going to survive on the boat, because this is really a great ensemble cast. And so much of what's memorable is this really isn't Willard on a lone assassin, but it's also not a buddy picture like Platoon that Charlie Sheen does with Oliver Stone um, about eight years later. But you had to have that microcosm of a type of platoon with Chef, with Mr. Clean, with Lance. And each one of them actually is fully developed in my mind as a character so that every uh, 
bad faith that befalls the boat in the final third of the film is really painful and heart-wrenching because they weren't just cardboard cutouts with Willard on the boat. But that was almost like a fully realized, you know, I want to use the word like family, but it's definitely a band of brothers. And that lends a lot of power. Otherwise, some of those later moments could feel very gratuitous and, you know, meaningless, but they don't. They're very powerful and sad because we care about these characters that are each filling a different role other than the one that's missing, which is Macho Soldier. That That's the one that's not there except in the characters that they bump into on their travels down the river. The, the band of brothers in the boat are all reluctant members of uh, being in the military in Vietnam. Good point. That's the grunts. It's fascinating. You know, we were talking, I mentioned the whole idea of like the world and everything. And it just reminds me of the, the moment, you know, you, you talked about the tiger before and afterwards when chef just loses it. And I don't remember if it's in the, the, which cut of it it is, but there's one point where after that happens, he says, I'm not here. I'm not here. I'm back in Texas. And he just freaks out and he just basically he he's putting himself back in the world as it were and i know that that definitely gets picked up by the scott glenn yeah. character who is you know basically missing from the the uh, final cut of it but there's a part in there where he talks about you know when you go back to the world and it's interesting that they are not in the world they are in the nether world and it's like this whole idea of them being in that fantasy that we were talking about, you know, Paul, you talked about how it's a fairy tale and they're, they are in a fairy tale and they, they could get out of it. They're, it's almost like they're waiting for the prince to come and, and kiss them and wake them up, you know, but instead they're here. They're, they're in this place that is outside of the realm of everything else. No, if it's a fairy tale, it's the brothers Grimm. They're waiting for the grandma dressed as the fox to eat them. <laughs> because this is a savage Brothers Grimm. This is a fairy tale that is going to have uh, no positive ending. It really is a film that earns its title. To me, it still has my favorite clever title design, which is that the title of the film actually shows up when the boat finally docks at Kurtz's compound, and one of the and spray painted on a rock is the word apocalypse now. Like, hey, we finally know what the movie's called. About two hours and fifteen minutes in, and it is it 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 it's a fairy tale in the traditional sense of what fairy tales were supposed to be. These were stories that were supposed to help us process our deepest fears and help us through our greatest anxieties. And I think that's part of what Coppola was trying to do with a American psyche. In 1976, when he starts principal photography that is still reeling from the problem of the Vietnam War. And so even though it's not released until 79, he was shooting when those wounds were still at their rawest. This is the time when a film like Coming Home will be in principal photography to talk about the issue of how do these military people who have been so damaged by this militarism in Southeast Asia, how do they reinsert themselves in the home. And then what is interesting, the deer hunter, I think, has that as its great thematic. But then Coppola wants to go back almost to study the origins of like, what was it that caused this great psychic damage? And I think that's his contribution to Vietnam War films, is he was the mytho-poeticizer of the conflict. 
there's also the notion you said of this being kind of a fairy tale. Have either of you ever heard the theory that it's actually the Odyssey and Kilgore is the Cyclops, the Playboy bunnies are sirens and that sort of thing? I know Millie's has brought that up and I can definitely see that playing into it. I mean, this really deals with the whole idea of the hero's journey. And when I was, I, the other day I was uh, about to lay down for a nap and as I'm laying down and my mind kind of clears a little bit, I'm just like, well, this is like the goddamn Wizard of Oz or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but without the happy <laughs> ending. This is the wizard if he doesn't give them jack shit. This is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory if it's you lose good day, sir. There's no gla- great glass elevator in this thing. This is going down the river, losing your, your companions, and, and Wizard of Oz is kind of gaining the companions, but by the end of it, you know, the Scarecrow's dead, man. The, you lose everybody. No, I love your point, Paul. I, I, I'm completely uh, sold. There are so many different possible templates for this film, and I think it is meant to have a lot of instability of trying to precisely argue what structure Coppola had in his mind. And if you watch the documentary Hearts of Darkness, I think, in fact, some days on a Tuesday he was typing one movie and some days on a Wednesday he was typing another movie. But uh, putting that aside for a moment, I also think it's a road movie. I mean, it really is. Like, this is like the road to Kurtz's compound. And it it has all of those devices. And the Odyssey's a road movie. Um, It really is about, you know, when you think about Odysseus as the man of twists and turns, that's who Willard is. Willard is a man of twists and turns. And he is on a mythic journey that even if we go full metal um, uh, odyssey on this, it's very much also a father-son narrative. In many ways, I read Kurtz as a father figure to Willard. Whatever part of the ending that I kind of like, because I still struggle with the ending of the film, I do like those scenes in which I do feel there's a paternalism to Kurtz because that's the only way that I can process the line by uh, Hopper when he says, man, you're still alive. That means he likes you. (laughs) I totally agree with you as far as the characters really being fleshed out. All of these guys are on the boat. And it's only been recently that as I'm watching the movie, I'm really paying attention to Lance. And I don't know why it took me so many years (laughs) before it finally clicked that Lance Johnson is LB Johnson. So (laughs) he's a stand-in for LBJ. So I don't know why it took that long, but really – he is so fascinating the way that as we're getting closer and closer to Kurtz's compound, he is losing himself. And he's almost more fascinating to me than Willard. But, you know, it's nice that their stories run in parallel and that when they get to Kurtz's compound, that he basically goes native. He becomes the, the another Colby and just kind of throws it all off and joins in with the natives. And even when it comes to, like, taunting uh, Willard in the cage and stuff, he's right there with them. And it's interesting to see the way that he changes. And the one thing that never dawned on me until recently as well was that at one point, after he loses the dog, the dog that you know he that he rescues from the sandpan. That after he loses that dog and, and talks about it a little bit, he doesn't really say anything else for the rest of the film. And to have a character that loses his voice like that, you know, towards the end of the movie, it's just like, oh, okay, that that's a little fascinating to me. Yeah, his narrate or his journey is interesting because, like you're saying, so much of it is nonverbal. And there's these great little moments, like when they're in the middle of shooting at the shore, he takes one of the arrows and breaks it and makes it into a little arrow going through his head, you know, stuff like that. And and he's said yeah. in later years that 
there was a lot of sitting around time and there was a lot of drug taking time. So I guess he had, yeah. a, he had yeah. some time to, to improvise. <laughs> Lance is the character that fulfills a very important function for Francis Ford Coppola. He is your darkness meter because they're going into the heart of darkness and you have to keep Willard upright and mildly sane so that he can be on some type of footing with Kurt. You don't want Willard to arrive at the compound insane because then you'll have two guys talking about snails on the edge of razor blades and I'm not quite sure where that movie would be going, but that's what you'd have. So what you have in Lance, how I read his performance, is he's the meter by how, as that boat, every click that boat goes, as it goes deeper and deeper into Cambodia, Lance loses his mind. He becomes one with the foliage. He literally goes full camouflage and is indistinguishable from the surroundings. But he's your meter because at the beginning, he's kind of like this fun, hip surfer dude who is the reason why Willard can even get his boat to the right um, launching point because Kilgore is so fascinated that Lance is a championship surfer. He'll do anything for Lance. He doesn't give a shit what Willard's orders are. But boy, Lance can surf and he wants to know if Lance has like a light board or a heavy board. But as Lance starts to lose his mind, to me, that was a brilliant narrative device by Coppola because that's the measurement by which you know just how fucked up that journey up the river was. I also like that there are things that tie Lance to other characters in the film. I mean, when we first see Willard in that hotel room, it's pretty quick when he starts to do like a, a drunken Tai Chi, which sounds like a great Jackie Chan movie, but he starts to do this drunken Tai Chi. And then we see Lance doing Tai Chi later on in the film. And then we see Scott Glenn doing Tai Chi in the background at the Kurtz compound. And then the whole t- idea, too, you were talking about you know, putting on the makeup and everything, going with the camo. And again, that's tied right to Kurtz. One of the first times we see Kurtz, he's in the camo. And then Willard, at the end of the movie, is in the camo. So it's interesting that we have these ties between him and these other things. And then the one thing that I never really noticed until recently, too, was the dog imagery and, and the whole idea of, you know, Know, Lance, of course, having a dog, but then the idea of when Willard, one of the few times we actually see him in action, when he goes and grabs the the one uh, guy at the, the Playboy compound and, and takes him and he's just like, you know, you get these guys some fuel. They, they say something about like, you know, the big dogs barking or something like that. And then there's another dog image when Kurtz throws something at Dennis Hopper and he's just like, get out of here, you mutt. So I don't know. Apropos of nothing, possibly, but I always love to pick up on these kind of themes. And it's just like, oh, OK, that's it's interesting that dogs get a few mentions and then the dog is so important to Lance. Well, reportedly, Brando and Hopper did not get along. And I believe when he throws the book at Hopper, that might have been an improvised moment because they said that Hopper was purposely kind of buzzing around Brando all the time like a bug and just making him irritable. <laughs> I think that might have been a little, a little nice little bit of improv there when he chucked the book at him. That whole end of the film, I mean, and like you, Rich, I have some problems with the end of the film, but just, you know, we were talking earlier about the idea of this screenplay that Millie's had and Millie's screenplay had an ending, but when Coppola got over to Manila, he was just like, or to the Philippines, I should say, he just said, this is not the end of the screenplay. I'm going to write the end of the screenplay. And he, maybe he did, but he kind
kind of didn't. And I think a lot of it just kind of ended up being these improv sessions between Coppola and Brando. And you can see evidence of that, of course, in the, the documentary. But I'm sure they wasted hundreds of feet of those millions of feet of film. I'm sure 100,000 were just on Brando. The problems with the ending, I mean, we should probably deal with it just a little bit. One of them is just a point that I just always struggle to get over, which is I love the idea at the beginning when he goes to the dossier that we're supposed to be dealing in the character of Kurtz with military royalty who at the age of 38 quits being like on the ladder to be one of the main generals in the Pentagon to go back to jump school. And he's competing with 19-year-old kids. So you're trying to picture this really buff 38-year-old <laughs> Superman who can keep up with these 19 year olds. And then I see, you know, 300 pound Buddha Brando going, wait a minute, this guy was just a year ago in jump school and he made it through the, you know, this guy is like literally like a Navy SEAL. I mean, I, I struggle with that. I mean, I, you know, we, it's well known Coppola did not know he was going to show up overweight um, and unprepared. And then the idea of then, really riffing on like these weird philosophical ad libs. Some of them are also in the documentary Hearts of Darkness. You'll see some of the ad libs that weren't used, uh, including my favorite one, which was actually more of an outtake when Brando goes, I think I just swallowed a bug. I I just love that line in the documentary Hearts of Darkness. That's probably reason enough to watch that one is to see the Brando line. I think I just ate a bug. But the ending is always going to be difficult. So here's how I'll defend an ending that I'm not super excited about, but I don't think like other people that the ending obliterates the previous greatness of 80% of the film is where could you go? Cause it's a, it's a voyage road movie odyssey style film. And it's about the journey, not the destination. And in those types of films, and I, I don't care what film it is, the destination never can quite live up to the journey, and I would even say even in The Wizard of Oz, the destination doesn't live up to the journey. I mean, just journey films, you want to be on the yellow brick road. You want to be on the river. You want to be on the two-lane blacktop. When you actually get to a city, a castle, or a compound, those films tend to just grind a little bit to a halt because the, it's just not as exciting as the journey. Yeah, you know, there's the whole thing about you're waiting, waiting, waiting for this big confrontation that doesn't exactly come. And it reminds me of a couple years before that in the Missouri breaks when Brando and Nicholson faced off. A lot of people were unsatisfied with that one, too, because the journey was great, but the climax was a little flat. So, yeah, you do have a problem. And obviously he had problems with Marlon. Um, I don't want to hark back to the harken back to the scripts too much. But in both of them, it's interesting that the thing that's the most unchanged is all the stuff with Kilgore and the bunnies and all that other stuff. That stuff's all solid. The beginning is different and the end is different. Now in the end of both Emilius versions, the one he did on his own and the one he did with Francis, the final images is Willard has been seduced by the idea of being a white God and he's got a, uh, a rifle and he's firing at one of the rescue helicopters. So in the first version, He's actually with Kurtz, and they're both firing at the helicopters. And in the second version, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. That happens. But then he ends up picking up a rifle and shooting at the uh, helicopters. And the men around him also are now his minions, and they also are doing the same. So clearly Coppola did not want to do that ending. And I've never heard anything to suggest that he filmed anything close to that either. 
Yeah, it's interesting. One of the articles I was reading about the film, they talked about three endings. Because I've heard about two being shown at Khan, and one of them seemed to be more of the uh, let's get the hell out of here and you know they don't call almighty there is no rain of fire and the other one seemed to be more of uh, just kind of uh, is Willard with Kurtz now and he does pick up the it, he's not firing at the rescue helicopters but it is more of a I'm going to pick up the mantle now you know the king is dead long live the king kind of thing trying to remember what the third one was that they talked about, but it's just like, yeah, they've never really, even when he's showing this thing at Khan, he didn't necessarily have the ending the exact way that he wanted. And it sounds like what you were saying before too, with the whole idea of adding that explosion at the end, mm-hmm. there's still more, you know, and of course you're talking about ending with an explosion. I, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Ed Wood, as long as it ends with a big explosion. <laughs> Back in the nineties, when I was in Los Angeles, I saw the what's referred to as the New York screening version. This was the version that he shows about three months before he has to publicly release the film. And this was the version that Paul didn't see, where instead of it fading to black, as Willard calls in Operation Archangel, I saw the version just before that, in which after they call in Operation Archangel, the film I saw ends on the explosion of the compound, going sky high, completely blowing up because Archangel's called in, and it truly ends with an apocalypse. Everything, shattered earth, it's a complete wasteland. And I have to admit, as I was preparing for this and rewatched uh, the original uh, release version again, I prefer it when it just fades to black and leaves that more ambiguous. Yeah, at the time, there were some people that had said, I don't get the ending. And, you know, he walks out, and they're all waiting there, and he's got the book in one hand, or the papers in one hand, and he's got a weapon in the other. He sets the weapon down, they set their weapons down, and he leaves. I mean, that's a perfectly logical 70s ending, as far as I was concerned. I remember what the other ending was. It was that there's more of a celebration. And they even say in the article that I read that the tribe is singing Light My Fire. And I saw an instance of the tribe singing Light My Fire. So I know that isn't 100% bullshit. You talked about the the doors being the soundtrack and really watching that that work print of it. I mean, that's it. The doors are, are there, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting. You do get a little Susie Q in there and stuff, but it's interesting too, that it's a, it's a, it's not the Rolling Stones doing Satisfaction. I think it was uh, uh, Otis Redding's version of Satisfaction. So a little different flavor there. We did talk about this whole idea of the father-son relationship between Kurtz and Willard, and if that's a thing. And really, there's so much, you know, uh, talking about the the cinematography and, and going all the way back to the beginning with that, you know, the, the shot of... Um, Willard there with the light on one side of his face and not on the other. I notice how many times in this movie that people are bisected by light, like looking at uh, Colonel Corman or sorry, General Corman and the way that his face is being bisected when he's talking about Kurtz uh, in his trailer or the way that 
Kurtz is bisected towards the end when we first meet him and he raises his head up from from the light. It always, of course, in, in of course, seeing Willard smashing a mirror, I'm immediately thinking of doppelgangers and I'm thinking about doubling and all these kind of things. And then what really brings that home for me is this whole idea of, you know, we've got characters in here, you know, Colby, Corman, Kurtz, Kilgore, you know, it's just like all of these guys that have very similar names, especially Colonel Kurtz and Colonel Kilgore. And it's just like, okay, like looking, it, it kind of reminds me of a movie that would come years later. You know, whenever I see Full Metal Jacket, I always think that Private Pile somehow transmogrifies into Animal Mother. It seems like the worst soldier in the world and the best soldier in the world, best in quotes. And it almost seems like Colonel it's like Kilgore is one side of the coin and, and Kurtz is the other side of the coin for me. But it's also these names are evocative in the same way Kubrick liked evocative names. I mean, whenever I kill kill Kilgore, I mean, it's the words kill and the word gore. I mean, I think about a movie like Dr. Strangelove where Sterling Hayden's character is Jack Ripper. Jack the Ripper. I mean, it's like it's meant to be over the top. Those names are coming mostly out of the Milia script, but it does show that there is an element like in a movie like Dr. Strangelove and even in Full Metal Jacket that you can't fully play these types of stories straight. There is always a little bit of a parodic um, angle. And I think that that bisecting of light you're talking about that duality is that this film is light and dark and if we were to bring in something that you know you open up by kind of drawing this kinship which i do in my own brain a kinship between apocalypse now and full metal jacket the best discussion of kind of that duality is the character of joker played by matthew modine green what is that button on your body armor a peace symbol sir what is that you've got written on your helmet Born to kill, sir. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be, some kind of sick joke? No, sir. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. That's what I feel about in Apocalypse Now. I think those bisecting light and faces is all about having that element of the duality of war. It is about the peace and born to kill and... It's not as put into the text as it was in uh, Full Metal Jacket eight years later, but it's there. And that's how I read that bisecting. Yeah, needless to say, Victorio Storaro, the cinematographer, you know, he paints with light, as they say. And he's just a total master in this. And it, again, like you were saying, Mike, you could take just certain frames out of this and have them framed and put on the wall. They're just gorgeous. And I think the top or proper term is he shot the shit out of it. But I even like when they get into the murky Brando stuff and Brando's playing with the light. It's almost like he's a button that's trying to stick his head through the loop or something to, to fasten into the coat. He gives, you know, he puts a little bit in at a time, then he goes backwards and he, he kind of twists his head around and stuff. And even though it's, like we said, maybe not cinematically as bold of a climax as we want, is a standalone piece, I still love it. I love all the, yeah. the rambling and all the nonsense. I mean, he is supposed to be crazy, so he does crazy talk. And also, there's another thing that we have to talk about regarding the use of Storaro's lighting on a medium like 70 millimeter. You can get a much more immersive black. You can do things with texture in 70 millimeter that bring out those lower light values that, again, even digital film doesn't quite have that responsiveness. And so I definitely think that 
Coppola utilized a brilliant cinematographer to frequently do a work on the mood and tone of this film by, you know, saturating and using the 70 millimeter palette frequently not to fill the shot with the spectacle of like the Dulong bridge sequence, but sometimes it really is just these heads in half shadow. And you really see the humanity in their expressions and like every wrinkle is as vital as, you know, the helicopter explosions were an hour earlier. And to me, you can't really do that with the same level of artistry unless you have a medium like 70 millimeter that has such a density and ability to perform those scenes that I think a lot of people who haven't been lucky enough to see 70 millimeter films don't will just have to take my word for it. But that's one of the things we've lost in the art of film, that this is truly a film that takes advantage of the medium it was shot in. There are so many scenes where you don't even see anything and, and for good reason. I mean, just like, when they're on the boat and they're going through the smoke or the fog and, and just talking about the, the whole dream-like feel of the entire film, and that just really adds to it. I mean, that's what, probably one of the most direct references is, is the way that they're going through the fog and everything. But God, that is absolutely gorgeous just to kind of get little glimpses of these characters in this fog. And yeah, it, it's it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. And, and even now... We'll talk about the French plantation scene later on, but I have to say one of the most beautifully shot sequences in the world. And yes, it, it's got to be terrible to lose such a beautifully shot sequence. I mean, just again, the dreamlike imagery of that sequence alone, gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And just the way that they play with the light and everything, just beautiful. I mean, you, you almost want to weep when you see how gorgeous this movie is. Yeah, I was reading some of the articles about whether or not it's a pro-war or anti-war film, and I think it's a war dream movie. I mean, uh, fever dream is a term that's used too much, but it really fits here because you're just kind of enveloped by it as you go down that river. And, I mean, you're dealing with some real masters. And When you're talking about what you can see and not see, it's because that's the way they want it. They want to reveal a little bit at a time or they want to reveal a widescreen or something else, you know, that they want to do it. And you got to just trust them that they're going to take you on that journey. And he was always like that with Gordon Willis too. in the um, Godfather films, the, the, the studios used to freak out. Uh, Paramount freaked out that the movie was so dark and they were just like, you know, just trust us. You got to trust us. And I know it is a kind of disturbing thing for some people. And, they want to see, you know, there's the studio thing of you just want, I want to see the money. Show me the money. And that means turn all the lights on. And that's not always the best way. And also, Paul, it's an allegory. It's based on a source novel, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which is about a person going into down a river in Africa to discover the, you know, story behind a person called Mr. Kurtz. And that's why I think it's very dreamlike is no matter what they were going to do with a Vietnam War picture called Apocalypse Now, when your source material is a 19th century novel of the problems of colonization, it's an allegory. It's always going to be a story in which almost every scene stands for something else. And that's why I think in the conversation we've just been having in this podcast, that's why if people are hearing this and say, I don't still quite understand what this film is, if you haven't seen it before, is it is meant to be, depending on what you bring to it and how you decide in your own brain to crack open these little puzzle boxes 
the source material itself was an allegory. This is an allegory, and that's what creates that dreamlike atmosphere for me. I've heard Conrad's writing being described as as impressionistic, so not even going for you know the cold hard facts, going for showing things in the light. You know the way that Paul was talking about. It was more of the flavor of what was going on. I had a friend of mine tonight who was talking about he's uh, he illustrates medical textbooks, and he said that there was a quote from Heart of Darkness in a medical textbook where they were talking about malaria and the uh, the problems of colonization and, and how malaria would affect people and all this kind of stuff, and was saying that so many things in Heart of Darkness seemed to say that some of these people were suffering from, I hate the term fever dream as well, but from the idea of them being sick with malaria and being feverish and being able to see things that weren't necessarily there. So it's interesting to even take a read on it that way that, you know, maybe Mr. Kurtz was uh, suffering a little bit of uh, sickness from the from the tsetse's flies. I can't find it again, but I remember reading a, a script excerpt back in the day where Kurtz pulls up his shirt and he's got uh, maggots in a wound and he's dying already. And he says something to the effect of that it's a, a metaphor for his life, that he's, he's rotting from the inside out. There's that kind of imagery, too, that's startling, and maybe that's also inspired by Conrad. You'd mentioned that this is a bit of an allegory. I noticed when I was doing some of the research, too, that when uh, Orson Welles was going to do it, he wasn't going to put it in the original time frame. He was going to update it, too, and put in, I think, some sort of Nazi imagery behind it, too. No, I, I think that's the smart play, because otherwise... You know, you have to be very obedient to telling a 19th century colonial throwback story when the spine of the story is so much about a story structure that can focus on a troubled protagonist trying to meet a mythical antagonist and then using the journey of the river to have all of these smaller series of adventures it's just it's a it, it's a delightful structure for a novel and and it's a delightful story structure for a film films don't tend to want to be this open-ended and you could really contrast a film like this with a film like platoon to just look at how you know much more wide-ranging and open-ended the structure is for apocalypse now versus the more classical oliver stone structure that he pursued in platoon. And the other part that I would just uh, throw in on top of that is that I do love this idea of looking at the source material over this broader period of time, because we are talking about the film that Orson Welles was going to direct prior to Citizen Kane. So I always just get a kick out of it that, you know, he went all the way, he had a full script written, he even started to have the first models, uh, set models designed by RKO for his version of Heart of Darkness, but he passed up, or he couldn't actually get that film launched, and then proceeded to make Citizen Kane, and that it was then picked up, not by him, by Orson Welles, but picked up by Coppola, I just think is one one of the fortunate things in film history because I put at their prime a director like Coppola up in the same pantheon as Norson Wells because I still think that if this was a film that Milius held out to to direct for himself, I don't think we'd be talking about this film in quite the same way today. What other film gets a making of documentary 12, 13 years later that can have the power 
of something like Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's uh, what was it called? A filmmaker's journey. So wonderful. I saw this one. I, actually, I think I saw this. And I saw Apocalypse Now on the big screen at the Michigan uh, as a double feature. And this was where I first found out about Orson Welles doing Heart of Darkness. And this had the test footage of him and had some pictures of him, you know, in the makeup and everything. And it was just amazing. Of course, Orson Welles, the great chameleon, you know, seeing the picture of him on Time Magazine as an old man when he's like not even in his 20s, you know, it's just like, uh, okay, you know, and, and here he is as Mr. Kurtz, just blew me away. And then the way that they utilized that story and, and the radio drama that Wells had put on about uh, Heart of Darkness and using that as one of the narrative threads to wind us into the story of Francis Ford Coppola's trip down the river without a paddle, as Ernie Ford Facilius would say, you know, or up the creek, I should say. He, It's just amazing that, that this movie, uh, that Apocalypse Now ever got made and that Hearts of Darkness ever got made as this documentary, and just is so enlightening. I mean, we've talked about the rumors that had surrounded this movie for so many years, and here's this this film, this this hour and a half long documentary to really kind of a set the record straight and b blow your mind with stuff you never thought of in a, in a million years. It was just amazing to see this great open behind the scenes look at the making of this movie. I love the documentary Hearts of Darkness. If no one has uh, seen it yet, it's a great double bill like you said. Go, you know, go grab the Blu-ray set that's out with Apocalypse Now. It has the Redux version also has Hearts of Darkness. This is ostensibly it's just a documentary that is the making of a picture. But my God, I always see Hearts of Darkness. And it's also Hearts of Darkness is also based on a book that I actually I might be one of the few people in the world who recommends because Francis Ford Coppola's wife actually kept a diary during the shooting of Apocalypse Now. And in the early 80s, she released the book under the title Hearts of Darkness. And I absolutely love reading her diary notes because she was very truthful about what was going on in her marriage and, you know, the increasing levels of insanity in Francis Ford Coppola. And the part that becomes interesting to go back to one of our earlier points is if you watch Hearts of Darkness, you start to see the parallel between a character like Lance and Francis Ford Coppola, director, because he kind of starts this film in a fairly sane place, but by the end of Hearts of Darkness, you kind of do see something that you really do want to caption as a filmmaker's apocalypse. At some point, he kind of goes insane in making this film. That also was what kind of fought against the ending, too, that he was so all in. This was a character that it's like, you know, never get out of the boat. But if you do get out of the boat, you got to go all the way because, you know, there's no other option. And this might be the most in all the way of any filmmaker in history. I mean, Coppola had to love this damn film if he's going to mortgage his winery. That's all I have to say. Most of the time, uh, a documentary about a film will be one thing or another. This one was two. This was during shooting, he handed a camera to Eleanor, uh, Francis's wife, and said, why don't you do a behind-the-scenes thing? So here you've got this woman who's getting really up close and personal in a way that uh, like an EPK would not be getting that sort of footage. But then you've got years later, she's just kind of got this mess of film, and two directors who are way outside of the project are able to put it into – 
you know, the proper framing and they're ready to talk about the thing now that several years have passed. And then they also get a hold of all this neat footage that implies there's more to the film than what we've seen. So it, it's, it's a definitely, uh, like Rich said, I, I recommend it very highly. Very interesting look at the behind the scenes. Yeah, it really shed a whole lot of light on this that, and, and brought to it a whole lot of stuff that I never would have even thought of. And uh, we're, we're going to hear an interview with Fox Barr, the co-director of the film here in a few minutes, and the way that he talks about where the film ends and that there was so much more. And so I'm very grateful that there are supplemental things on some of these DVDs and Blu-rays, like s- some of the idea of the uh, the sound mixing and seeing these interviews with Walter Murch way back in the day, or some of the recording sessions and really capturing the idea of like Coppola was going for with some of the electronic score, just this otherworldliness, because it's fascinating to me that you can have these rock tunes you know, have the doors and having CCR and having the Rolling Stones in there and then play off, you know, we were talking about the duality of the movie, start playing off of that with this kind of wild uh, electronic score. And, and it just is like, where is this coming from? But yet it fits, it marries perfectly to the image. You know, you can't necessarily think of one without the other these days. Yeah, we should yeah, mention, I, too, that if you love these DVD extras, these are going the way of the dodo bird. The studios are not really into putting up much money for it anymore. I know a couple guys that made very good livings for about 15 years doing this sort of thing. And, you know, even something like a Criterion now might get released with some old Laserdisc commentary or something. So these these ones, like the Apocalypse Now, does have some very good behind-the-scenes stuff. You've got hours and hours of stuff yeah. in there. you got virtually an Apocalypse Now class course you can take if you watch all the different versions and all the extra stuff and i still haven't watched have you guys done the one of watching the film with francis where you click on him narrating yes i watched i watched almost all of that one and the thing that I like is that he's now able to look back on this because he was, you know, had they tried to do Hearts of Darkness in 1981 instead of 1991, he would have been too close to it, you know. And, and I'm, I'm curious now, like, what would it be like to check in with Francis Ford Coppola in 2016 and what are his feelings about this now, you know, because he it was 10 years out or a little bit more after Apocalypse Now came out that they're making Hearts of Darkness what how has this perspective changed over the years because it was such a major event in his life yes he was mortgaging the winery he was mortgaging his house everything he was all in as you were saying and you know in here again talking about these articles that were constantly like apocalypse when kind of stuff everybody who was waiting for this guy to fail you know it was like he, he was this wunderkind who had he'd done the impossible with these two godfather films uh winning oscars having you know godfather what was it godfather 2 and and the conversation being nominated for best picture in the same year here's this guy who is at the top of the world and everybody's just waiting for him to fall and just all the vultures were out and and Mike, you should have called him. Oh, that, oh, yeah. I don't know why I didn't try that. <laughs> no, but 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 the part that's fascinating to what to build on what you're saying there, Mike, is I agree with all that, and it reminds me of that famous quote that great men's errors are more meaningful than little men's truths. That there's a lot of errors that Coppola made in this film, but my God, with the 
perspective of hindsight, there was just so much greatness in this film that you just can forgive now so easily, in my opinion. Uh, and I'll just speak for myself. I can forgive so easily the errors in the wrong turns because the greatness is just so palpable that whatever mistakes were made pale to what is actually delivered in that on that celluloid. Agreed. And as Lou Reed once said, my shit is better than your diamonds. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the co-director of Hearts of Darkness, Faxbar, after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. 
Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. My name is Max Barr, and I am a writer, producer, director, working in the entertainment business in Los Angeles. And how did you get involved with Hearts of Darkness? I had been uh, doing behind-the-scenes documentaries, promotional documentaries, for uh, a company that dealt with the major studios. And the guy who was running the company came to me and said uh, he had just read Eleanor Coppola's notes. And uh, he said, have you ever read it? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, in the book, she keeps talking about uh, all this footage she shot on the set of Apocalypse Now. He said, I don't think the documentary ever came out. Would you be interested in exploring this? And I was like, absolutely. I was a big fan of Apocalypse Coppola. And so he arranged a meeting. We went up to, uh, we went up to Zoetrope in San Francisco, and uh, they were extremely interested in having somebody do something with the footage. I think it had been sitting on the shelf for quite a while. Um, they said, you know, we've, we've made a couple attempts to cut it, but if you guys want to give it a whack, go ahead. And um, they were actually, they, you know, they were like, yeah, you know, I don't know. You know, we haven't seen the footage in a while, and we're not sure it's all that good. And we, <laughs> so we looked at a few of the reels, and it was just astonishing stuff. I mean, we, we knew right away this was going to be this was going to be a good documentary that Eleanor had really covered the production from beginning to end and uh, had done a beautiful job with it and so um so I went ahead and cut together like a you know, 15 minute reel and wrote up a proposal and uh, we sold it to Showtime. And when you're saying we, who are you talking? A guy named George Zoom, who I was working for at the time. And how did uh, George Hickenlooper get involved in this? After I sold the film and I started working on it, um, I really made like zero money on the on the movie, and I was about to get married and all the stuff. And I happened to land a job. I was I did a lot of uh, other writing at the at the time. I was writing sketches uh, and had a play that was like a sketch comedy troupe and a play that was going on to the theater at the time. And I got hired with a writing partner to um, the staff of In Living Color. And everybody was fine with my doing the two jobs simultaneously, but it was an incredibly time-consuming thing. So uh, I brought George on to uh, help edit uh, the movie, the documentary. What was that first meeting with Eleanor Coppola like for you? I mean, I was pretty nervous. I mean, this was a long time ago, but uh, I didn't really know how she would react to somebody coming in and sort of playing around with footage that she shot, but she was extremely, you know, hands off about it. She was like, Oh, you know, if you got, you know, whatever you guys want to do, don't worry about it. I won't interfere too much. I just, you know, obviously I want to look at the, what you cut and the way you're telling the story, but um, I've read your proposal and I like it and uh, you know, go with God. Was all of this stuff, what in 16 millimeter, just kind of hanging out? Yeah. 16 millimeters. So we edited it in 16. So we had uh, flatbeds and 
bins with 16 millimeter work print. <laughs> it was really quite a process. Now, obviously, you shot a lot of new footage as well. What was that process like for you? Um, well, I got to interview everybody who was involved in the film. So George Lucas and John Milius and, you know, Francis. And, uh, oh, it was just thrilling. That must not have been intimidating at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were all really very willing to talk about it. I think it had been, the, making, making Apocalypse Now had been a transformative event in pretty much everyone's life because, you know, it had been spending quite a bit of time in a far-off country and the whole Vietnam thing. And it was, it was you know, people wanted to, it wasn't a regular film for anybody. How much of Hearts of Darkness was already shot by Eleanor versus how much did you guys end up shooting? The thing that I did was I did interviews with everybody to discuss it, and then I went back into dailies from Apocalypse Now and looked at extending like that stuff with Brando at the end, those dailies that we had, and uh, and some of the French plantation stuff that we found. So, I, you know, percentage-wise, I don't know, maybe 30% was new stuff that I'd either shot or found, or you know, the Orson Welles stuff, some of the stills and that kind of thing were all things that, that, uh, that Eleanor did not shoot, obviously. But. The framing device with the Orson Welles stuff was just brilliant, brilliant stuff. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You know, I think that that was part of my original plan, but when Jim Milius brought it up in the interview that Orson Welles had tried to lick it, I think that really, you know, uh, made me made me think that this is a much more important thread than I had originally intended. I'm curious how long the whole process took for you, because I know the process of shooting Apocalypse Now was so long and so arduous. Did you kind of get lost in this project, too? A little bit, yeah. Um we, when I first went out with this, it was in it was in 1989, and the film had been released in 79. So we were going to try and hit that 20th anniversary. I'm sorry, a 10 year anniversary um, window, and we just couldn't couldn't get it together. I don't think we had the financing together at that point. So it wound up being released. We went to uh, to Cannes. We first screened it in, at Cannes in 1990. What was the reaction when you first showed it? People loved it. It's a cinema, you know, lovers movie. So we got a we got a very good reaction at Cannes, and you know, at Francis, the first time I screened it for Francis, which was a which was a, uh, I don't think the film was finished yet, but he, you know, he he wanted to see it, and that was quite nerve wracking, and you know, sitting a few rows behind him, and he was taking notes, and I thought, oh no, what's he going to say? But he said. Uh, at the time, actually, I had hired an actress to read Eleanor Coppola's passages from the book notes. When we finished screening for Francis, he told me, he said, look, I, 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 you did a great job. I'll give you an A- minus on this film because there's one false note. And he said, you know, you should really have Eleanor read from her own. It's her story. She should have her read the Read the, read the notes passages, and we did, and uh, so then he he gave us an A. Yeah, that must have been very uh, intense watching it with the filmmaker, especially since this was such an intense experience for him when he made the movie. I was terrified. 
yeah, I was very surprised when I was looking at your CV and I'm seeing like in living color and house of Buggin and all these things. I'm just like, is this the same guy? <laughs> it- yes. I've had a schizophrenic uh, career for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I do go back and forth. It's funny because, you know, I've, I'd spent a lot of time in, in television comedy and, you know, the, the part of it was really just, it was, um, you know, the documentary paid zero and, and, uh, you know, I was just, I just got married and I had a kid. And so I really, you know, I was, um, lucky enough to get involved with some, some really good television comedy and it, so it paid the bills. So I guess I, I would have to say I sold out early, <laughs> um, but I'm trying to get back to more, uh, <laughs> more esoteric material now and, uh, Sort of more cause-based stuff. So hopefully, I can redeem the <laughs> the artistic side of my of my career now. Hearts of Darkness has become over the years. It's become the go-to kind of. It, it really kind of helped write the template for movies about movies. Now, I know there had been other movies about movies or kind of behind-the-scenes looks at things before, but really, Hearts of Darkness helped you know, make that much more of a popular medium, I would think. And I'm not just trying to blow smoke up your ass. But when it comes to you working on this, obviously you had had experience doing behind-the-scenes stuff for, I imagine, like supplemental DVD-type releases and everything. Actually, not DVD, because this is 1991 before DVD yeah, was even... with press kits, really. Press kits, okay. But when you're there making Hearts of Darkness, were there films that you kind of drew upon to help craft the way that this story was going to be told? Well, I've been a, a big fan of Burden of Dreams. I mean, Burden of Dreams really, I think, uh, set the mold for that for that type of in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at filmmaking. And actually, Les Blank was uh, shot from the Hearts of Darkness. Um, he and Eleanor hired him to, to shoot on the set for a while. I mean, there were other films. You know, this was one of those projects where you, I just got it. I mean, I was a huge fan of Heart of Darkness, the book. Uh, you know, it was one, really one of my favorite novels. And um, and I'd loved uh, Apocalypse Now. And the, so when I dug into it and after reading notes, I realized that it was such an extraordinary thing that Francis was trying to do with Apocalypse Now, which was to actually put the actors and the crew through an ordeal that was similar to the film that they were making. He wanted everybody to have a, uh, to journey into their own heart of darkness. And he felt like that was the best way for the film to be, to be true to itself. And he went on a journey himself. And so that when, when I knew that that was his intention, it really drove the whole, narrative that I was trying to create. Now, I know you're a fan of, of Apocalypse Now. What was that like seeing some of that footage that nobody had seen for all of those years? It was, it was thrilling. It was, I'll tell you, the, the, the mo, one of the most electrifying moments was um, after I had cut the reel together, because they only, they sent down, I don't know, you know, sent down 10 or 15 reels of dailies and I put together a presentation out of that. But then all of the footage came down and I've told this story many times, but there was, I was sitting in the editing room one day opening boxes and I don't know, Elliot Elliot shot 80 hours of footage or something. There was quite a bit of material to go through. And there was a 
a shoebox, an unmarked shoebox, which I opened up, and it was filled with audio cassette tapes. I remember way back in the day. And uh, they just had little pieces of white tape on them with dates. And I was like, what's this? No, no marking at all. And I popped it into our, uh, our beatbox, which we had in the editing room, and listened to this first tape. And it was a tape of Francis just going bananas, just haywire with, you know, this film is going to be terrible. I was like, oh, my God, what is this? And I started to listen to all these tapes. Obviously, Ellie had, you know, the wife had access to the artist when the artist was in his most vulnerable and most honest kind of throes of creation, you know, in the midst of creation. And late at night, she would just put the tape recorder on and he would rant. And that's something that almost never happens. It's, it was such a rare, rare thing that only somebody, only somebody who was so close to the filmmaker could get. You know, some, such a trusted relationship. So that was really kind of when when I had that, I sort of figured the whole structure of the moving out movie out, and then I knew that I had the inner monologue of the of the artist as well. And I was that was sort of the the moment that everything crystallized. It must have almost been like going in and read, reading someone else's diary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good way to put it. It was, you know, it was a private thing. That um, uh, you know that, and then Francis Francis was surprised that we had that material. And uh, there's a there's a title card at the beginning of Hearts of Darkness that says, you know, he didn't know that his wife was recording him when he was going through this crisis crisis and talking about it. Well, I know Francis gave you an A, but what did Eleanor give you? You know, I, I, she clearly liked the film. I don't recall her ever, you know, doing the grade thing, but uh, she was um, she was always very complimentary, and it was really such a uh, a pleasure to work with her because she's really a an artist herself and feels strongly about giving artist's freedom. Like, I, I think Francis railed against the system of people overseeing him on his films, and I think when he went to do Zoetrope, he intended really not to do that. He wanted to let artists be, you know, just make the film that they intended to make, and if it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. So I think the, the both of them uh, uh, gave me that freedom, which was incredibly um, generous, and it was a wonderful thing to have. It's one thing to have a movie parodied, but to even have a documentary that's parodied, that must have been somewhat interesting to be able to see like an Animaniacs episode that's parodying your own work. Yeah, I've actually never seen that. It was called Hearts of Twilight. Oh, (laughs) I'll have to check that out. I have not seen that. I didn't even know about it. They're going into the jungle to find, basically, it's like an overweight version of uh, Jerry Lewis. (laughs) And then even I would say the um, Tropic Thunder. Yeah, seems to I'd say Tropic Thunder that, but... is definitely. Uh, they definitely had seen Hearts of Darkness. I think you being able to see that footage of Brando for the first time after all those years. Yeah, must have just blown your mind, and it must have been a matter of how do we cut this down to fit in the documentary. Yeah. Well, the um, I don't know if you recall, but at one point when he's uh, Francis's. You know, we got the dailies of when Francis was doing one of those endless improv takes um, and, you know, preparing him with questions about Vietnam and stuff. And then suddenly Brando stops and says, I swallowed a bug. And we were just, I remember sitting with the editor, we just 
stopped uh, stopped the uh, the flatbed, stopped the footage from rolling, and he looked at we just looked at each other and went, "Oh my god, that is the best, fantastic." Yeah, and then you know, it's so great that Francis let us let us show that. For you, what was that first cut of the film like? Were you always just aiming at that ninety minutes, or did you have an initial first cut and then you had to pare it down oh, to be no. much? Oh, I had. To, I mean, I, as I recall, it was might have been five hours the first cut. It was long because we did everything. We did all the pre-production, the post-production. Had long, long passages of them recording the voiceover and interview with Michael Hare, who uh, had written dispatches and wrote the wrote the, the uh, inner monologue from of Willard so we, we did interviews with him and you know went through that whole process and you know there could have been a whole I mean you know could have could have put out two or three different films <laughs> with all the material that I had but um, eventually it took this form was there ever talk of a Hearts of Darkness Redux version <laughs> no that has never been uh, been discussed to my knowledge, anyway. Yeah, I mean, he did release the the film with uh, all of that stuff that uh, that he had taken out, put back in. So you must have felt very inside baseball when you were able to see that. Yeah, stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'd seen it all. It was funny. You were ever like, well, where's this scene? I remember that from the five-hour cut of the film. <laughs> yeah, he did not put in. There was a whole sequence with the Playboy bunnies during the hurricane. And that he just he didn't he didn't put that in, and I did I did see a version of that, like a very rough cut version. I don't think I think he knew pretty early on that he wasn't going to use that, so I don't think they ever really like spent a lot of time editing that sequence. I'm curious, what are you working on these days? Um, I'm doing another documentary. I'm producing uh, a documentary right now that uh, we shot in Denmark and uh, Zambia, Africa last year, which is a very different type of thing. It's about a, a musician who um, his mother was Zambian, his father Danish, his father was down in Zambia back in the early 1980s. He was born in 85 and uh, became very ill when he was an infant and they took him, they didn't, couldn't figure out what was wrong and they took him back to Denmark and he was HIV positive. And the parents didn't know. So they both got tested. They both had it. And they died. He was orphaned when he was eight years old and uh, was raised by his dad's best friend and became, like, sort of threw himself into music and um, became a pop star. Like, married Miss Denmark, became a pop star in, in Denmark and sort of, you know, escaped into music and then. Uh, reconnected with his family in Zambia and realized that the AIDS problem down there is just terrible. Nobody will get tested. There's a 13% infection rate in the population of the country. And so he sort of transformed himself into an activist and has been uh, back down in Zambia trying to kill the stigma around getting tested for, for HIV. So we threw a big concert. And um, so the, the documentary is that is a long way of saying that the documentary is both his backstory and his coming to activism and then the end of the documentary is a concert we threw on World AIDS Day last year that where we did a test for tickets concert. So you get tested and you get a free free pass into the concert and we tested like eleven thousand people. So we're in the middle of editing that now and we're trying to get it. Hopefully we can get it into Sundance. I had heard a, a rumor, and you might be able to confirm or deny this. I heard a rumor that Mad TV might be coming back. Is there any truth to that? I think it is coming back. Yes, it's coming back on the CW. But I'm not. Uh, I'm not a part of that. 
you were involved with that for a long time, or, or you were one of the original creators, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. My writing partner and I created the show uh, back in 1995. Can you tell me, how did you get involved with Bad Grandpa? Um, well, um, I had done uh, the Jamie Kennedy experiment, which was hidden camera show um, that did sort of long form hidden camera pieces, you know, more, more scenes than just, you know, um, quick hits. We got a call from um, uh, our agent saying that they were looking for writers to, that Knoxville and Jeff Tremaine were looking for writers to help them come up with a movie revolving around a character that he had done on the TV show, the, the bad grandpa character. So I think they liked the idea that we knew how to do, that we'd you know, written movies and we knew how to do sort of longer form hidden camera stuff. So they brought us on and we wrote up a treatment, which we um, sold to Paramount to, uh, to go ahead and to give us the go ahead to make the movie. And then basically, sort of by credit, because we really weren't there on set or, you know, those guys just are so, such masters at that stuff. So we would basically just present them with ideas help them with the narrative thread of the movie, just the basic story beats, and uh, and then they would go off and shoot it. Well, hey, can you keep me up to date with the, the documentary? Because it sounds fascinating. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, yeah, we'll have it. We're cutting away, so we, we should have it done in a couple months. Well, thank you so much for your time today, sir. This has been wonderful. Absolutely, Mike. Call me back if you haven't need any follow-up. and we were talking about Apocalypse Now. Now, with Hearts of Darkness, that was the first time that a lot of people heard of. I think I had heard of some of these scenes. I knew that there was a, a longer version of the movie out there, but it was the first time a lot of people had seen the longer version of Apocalypse Now. And I'm trying to remember when that longer version kind of made itself known. I want to say it was, what, early... 1990s i seem to remember seeing it in the video search miami catalog you know hey over three tapes it's going to cost you an arm and a leg but i know that there was a a huge connection between that longer cut of apocalypse now and the magazine film threat which paul i know that you've had a little bit of experience with over the years yes um i was a contributor from the beginning, and then in 94, I had an offer to come out and uh, edit the magazine for Chris Gore after Larry Flint had bought the publication. So for two years, they gave me editorial freedom, and easily the best thing we did was this Apocalypse Now thing. So let me give you just a little background. All the way back during The Godfather, when they did the, uh, the movie version of the book, they included some pictures in the middle. And one of the shots was of Michael with a shotgun getting revenge for his first wife, Apollina, being killed over in Sicily. And I said, I don't remember this in the movie. It's not, it's not in the book either, I don't think. So that meant there was a scene that had been, you know, obviously changed or at least left out. So I, I think it had been filmed, but it had been left out. But then 
when he did Godfather 2, he did put an elaborate version of getting revenge for her killing, um, but Michael doesn't do it personally. So that scene's kind of lost. So with that in mind, sometime later, uh, Coppola released, for those of you who might have heard of this, uh, AMC, I think, just ran it again, and HBO, something where they sequenced the Godfather films chronologically. And mm-hmm. um, not, not number three, of course, because that's, that's the Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. of. But anyway, uh, so... They ran it over uh, several nights on ABC, and they included about an hour of footage that wasn't in either Godfather 1 or 2. So, obviously, Coppola shoots extra stuff. So, me being this big, big fan waiting for Apocalypse Now to come out, uh, after I see it, I pick up a Rolling Stone, and Coppola gets interviewed in it. So, they bring it up. They say, is there you know, some other stuff? He says, no, not really. He goes, I mean, there's other shots from the same scenes, but there's no other version. So that, that's when I knew he's a lion. We befriended a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers while at Film Threat, and one of the ones we befriended was George Hickenlooper, who was the co-director of Hearts of Darkness. He had got into some sort of tussle with Coppola. I don't know the details of it. And he let it be known that he had a tape of a five-and-a-half-hour rough cut. And, of course, we just were, like, drooling so under the uh, – by the way, that's the first time it's ever been acknowledged that he was the source. So he got us the tape, and it was pretty crappy quality. But uh, like you were saying earlier, Mike, it's uh, – the temp track is almost all the doors. So you got hours and hours of the doors. And for those who are unfamiliar with the legend, it is definitely a rough assembly. There's endless shots of helicopters flying around. There's a lot of extraneous stuff. But they, they even gave us a shot of um, Harvey Keitel on the, the boat, kind of laughing it up. So that was interesting. So obviously there's this other version. <laughs> so this guy, the writer who really found it was a fellow named Paul Cullum. And he wrote a gigantic article for us. And I said, look, there's no reason this can't be the cover story. We're going to make some serious hay about this. So the cover line on the magazine was, Sheen stabbing children, Hopper's death scene, Brando blabbing, the five-hour version of Apocalypse Now you must see. And we did some primitive frame grabs where we showed the different scenes that became really the, um, the structure for how Redux was done. I mean, we did shots of the extended Robert Duvall scene where he's having a, a child put on a helicopter and sent to safety. And that had been something he'd mentioned that he was sorry Francis had cut that. We also did shots from the extended scene with the Playboy bunnies. Toward the middle of the article, we put in a little card that you would mail to Francis at Zoetrope in San Francisco. And it said, Dear Francis, it's been 20 years since Apocalypse Now. Well, since you shot it anyway, I would like to see the five-hour uncut version. All my friends are talking about it. It's part of history. Please allow it to be released on Laserdisc, broadcast, petty cable, whatever you want to do. And then signed, your friend and fan. So the issue came out, and I got a letter from Zoetrobe Films. No, first I got a phone call, and it was from a woman that worked there, and she said, you know, how did you get this? And I said, you know, uh, we, we found it. And she said, well, we feel like... We've been raped. We feel like we've been violated. You, it's like you walked into our vaults and took this out. This was never meant to be seen. So I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. We're just such big fans. We wanted to do this. And she said, well, a lawyer will be contacting you. So a lawyer indeed contacted me, and he said, I want all the copies. I don't want any more copies made. I want you to promise that nothing more will be done with this. Otherwise, we're going to sue you for libel. 
So I talked to a lawyer and he said, well, this is such a fawning praise for the film. They'd have a really hard time showing any kind of libel because you're saying you not only love it, you want more. It's like finding out that there's more tracks on Exile on Main Street or something, which they did about six years ago. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, th- there is all of film buffs have this thing of when there's something we love, 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 whether it's a movie or a CD or whatever, if you find out there's more, your first thought is, oh, more better. And it's not, not always the case. So, Francis um, was threatening this legal stuff, and Larry Flint, our boss, even though he never knew what we were doing editorially, we knew he liked to scrap. And I said, oh, this is great, because he's going to just tell them to screw off, and we're going to do whatever we want. So the next day, I got a call from the president of Larry Flint Publications, LFP, and he said, get rid of this. Make this go away now. Do whatever do whatever they're asking to do. We will not put one penny behind this fight. So some copies had been made, and I scrounged together what I could, and they sent a, uh, a courier over, and they took the tape, and they had me sign something and say, you know, that was it. Now, in subsequent years, I saw it online. Somebody was selling it. Somebody got a hold of it, and I know it's on YouTube. It, it's still the crappy quality one we saw. And somebody had the indignity to use part of the artwork from our cover to sell the bootleg online, which obviously we had nothing to do with. So I maintain that getting that out in the zeitgeist had to have contributed in some way to get Francis to finally, you know, do this. So we did it in 96. Uh, Redux comes out when? 99 or 2001? I want to say 2001. So... I didn't get to see it at the Dome like Rich did. I would have loved to have seen that. I saw it at a, a normal screen, I think the Harmony Gold, which is kind of a modest screen. And I just kind of went, oh, God. And I, uh, I'll i start off. Oh, here's what I propose. <laughs> it is such a mess <laughs> still. Okay. We need a fan edit. First of all, that French plantation scene has got to go. In the long version, the only reason that scene is any good at all is at the end, after he smoked opium with the French woman, she asks why he fights. And he says, because it feels so good. And Francis cut that line out again. And it's, you know, it's similar to the line from Bring Me the Head of Alfredo, which is because it feels so goddamn good, right? There's also the, the part I was referring to on the cover was when uh, Sheen is going to kill Kurtz. He finally gets to prove he's a badass, and he kills considerably more people. In the existing version, I think he kills, what, maybe two guards or something? In this one version, which is also not on the Redux and not on the extra footage DVD, he's running around with a giant spear, and a guy sees him coming toward him, and he lifts a child up, and Willard skewers the both of them, which is a side of Willard we didn't see. From the uh, super long version uh much of it went into Redux, and as you're aware, on the DVD, there's another half hour of scenes that they put in and just excise scenes, including, uh, you know, we never know what happened to the Hopper character, and it turns out that, what, um, Scott Glenn kills him, and then Scott Glenn is killed by uh, Willard with a, a knife. Special forces Special forces knife. knife. And watching that, it's pretty clunky. You can see why they cut that out. Uh, Glenn's kind of wooden in it. He's not really that good. I also like their scene where they're teasing uh, Willard in a tiger cage and they're dropping the bugs on his head and Brando goes and chats with him some more. I kind of like that one. I wouldn't mind seeing that one put in. But the French plantation's got to go. That movie, it brings the movie to a complete halt. But enough of me. What did you guys think of Redux? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I like it more philosophically than actually as a film, because I think it speaks again to the, the desire of so many fans to want more and more out of Apocalypse Now. So your idea of having some type of a third version, theatrical version, redux, and maybe a fan edit redux is, a, I think, exactly on the right uh, track. I think like with Exile on Main Street, I thought it was a great example. When you re-release some unheard Jagger Richard uh, tunes like Plunder My Soul, you're like, well, this is pretty good. But then you say, but I understand why they left it off the album in 72. The part that I want to always give a lot of credit to Coppola and Merch for in 1979 is under tremendous pressure to get this movie out. I really agree with their editing choices. They cut out uh, some of their critical darlings. You could see that they spent weeks on some of these scenes that they just lopped off because it did not advance the story, did not help create either a, a new thrilling moment of realism or a deeply mythological impressionistic moment. I mean, the reason why, for me, The French Plantation moment doesn't work. It belongs to a different film. The French plantation scene brings in and conjures up the whole notion of the colonial folly of the French in Vietnam. That's a different film. It, it has nothing to do with Apocalypse Now is directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And then these additional moments, like the other part that's jarring for me is as much as we always say we want more of a singular mo moment of great and if ever there is a better small role than Colonel Kilgore, played by Robert Duvall, show me that film. Because for the few minutes he's done in this film, he takes it over. And when you start to then get your wishes given and you have more footage of Kilgore, it dilutes the power. I mean, I think... You know, Merch, other editors in Coppola, when they were actually playing this on, you know, the Steinbeck back in 79, they were right to just go to the most, the crucial moments with Kilgore. Less was more. And when we actually got more is more, it didn't do anything for me. It, and it's very distracting for someone like me when this came out in 2001, and I'd probably already seen the film about 40 times, and I have a highly visual memory, I was like, why are they messing with this scene? It's fine if you just add in other scenes, but don't change my memory. Don't do a Jabba the Hutt showing up in Star Wars to me. This does not exist in Apocalypse Now, um, but now it does. So those are some of my issues. Now, uh, the cinephile film historian on me, the person who, you know, in my day job where I write essays on films, I like seeing the extra footage because it becomes something in which I can have another um, argument, another debate with the film. And the cinephile in me is more than happy that Redux exists. But if I had to um, recommend someone to really experience the apocalypse now that thrills me, that really provides, where I mean, just so we're very honest, I'm very clear about this. Apocalypse Now is probably one of my top 10 films of all time in global cinema history. Um, and so to me, it's the text that has no credits on it that is really the two and a half hour version released in 79. And everything else than that is what I would call more collector's oddity. And I love that it exists, but 
if you really just could only have one on a desert island, just give me the original release version for the three theater Rose Show in 79, and I'm good. I love Apocalypse Now, and I was a, a big fan of it. You know, like I said, I, I saw it in 70 millimeter, all this kind of stuff. And so then when the Redux version comes out, I'm like, okay, honey, you know, here we are. We're, we're, uh, we're uh, getting married in uh, a month from its release date. We, you know, here we are. We're, we're a couple. We're going to go see Apocalypse Now. My wife had never seen it. She hated the movie. And I just, I kept sitting there just going, but, well, but the original is really good. And she's like, well, that, then why did you take me to this? She's like, what is this movie? Three hours? And I'm like, yeah, three hours of sucking. This movie sucked. And just like, you know, and I'm just like, but, but honey, there's a great movie in this mess of a movie here. This, it really, really, I went to see Redux a second time theatrically. And I swear, when when the French plantation scene came on, I was just like, I'm going to go take an extended bathroom break. I am out of here. I'm like hanging out at the concession stand, just like, hey, how's it going tonight? Oh, yeah, pretty busy in here. Oh, my God. I couldn't stand that. And, yeah, just to hear all those stories where they're just like, we tried to make this work. We tried to make it work. Like in Hearts of Darkness, when they're talking about that French plantation scene, we tried this. And then we finally got it to work. And I'm just like, no. No, you didn't. You just, you missed it. It reminds me of the extended version of the Blues Brothers. You know, I've seen the Blues Brothers probably 100, 150 times. And then when I see the extended cut, it's just like all the rhythm is thrown off. It's just how like, much did they add? I don't, I don't even know that one. How much did they add? I don't even know how, how much. Well, it was, it was really weird, Paul, because like, just like you would be watching a scene and it would go on for an extra... 20 seconds and so you're, you're just thrown off every single time and it, and it never added anything so it wasn't like oh man that really you know that, that showed me a whole different side to Elwood or something it's just like it just felt like the beats were gone and you're just like okay now we're supposed to be on to the next one like there were moments where you wanted to yell and cut and then the scene would go on for a little while longer. And it's like, no. And that's, that's what Redux was to me. was just It felt like the rhythm was off. It felt like somebody started a metronome. Which is a shame to say, because Mertz is all about the rhythm of a film. And he did a, he did a, a good job trying to bring this thing back together. But they should have just left well enough alone. Well, it is interesting that they really did have this big blob, like you're saying, Rich, of footage, unbelievable amount of footage, and they carved a unique film out of it. Because in Redux, the most interesting parts of what it was almost, but it wasn't. Like, they found a place to put in TNA, and then they took it all out. And they found a way for him to bond more with the guys on the boat, and they took it out. And they had a scene where Sheen seemed to have a sense of humor, and they took that out. So there's all those, but Rich, you'll be happy to know... Francis has announced he has a new version of Cotton Club, which is about 35 ah, minutes longer. Ah, and, you yeah. know, he, he did that to both The Outsiders and yeah, Rumblefish. He did, re, you know, special editions, which I've not seen either. But Cotton Club is, is a fascinating failure. And if maybe somebody could fix that, maybe not. No, but it, but it becomes interesting because I agree with both of your points, but the one that really resonated with me is Mike talking about rhythm. And so I did recently watch the reconstructed Godfather films, which I think is apropos of this point. 
I love that the two films are very distinct in their rhythms. And I love that Godfather Part Two <laughs> is a story told in two time frames with all that amazing parallelism. And then when you try to tell the singular Godfather story, the rhythm of Godfather Two just collapses. And so no matter how much Francis Ford Coppola, and I mean this in all sincerity, is a genius at constructing shots. I mean, he is a man that you want to look at what he's interested at looking at. And he has a marvelous sense of framing and how to wring the best performances of their careers out of top flight acting talent. And yet his rhythms in great films are so fragile that it literally feels like when you start to tamper, it, it, Redux reminds me of of the sweater where you pull the string to just try to solve one little hole, but at the end of three hours, you end up completely unknitting the whole sweater, and you should just never have tugged at that string to begin with. That little weird string that was bothering everybody was fine and is at least better than a wholly deconstructed sweater that no one will ever wear again. And, you know, and that's how I feel about his work, and I think he constantly goes back to his rushes um, sitting in his airstream trailer watching on video assist you know recognizing like we all should that this is one of the cinematic rembrandts of our time but i don't need to see his under sketches i just want to see his final canvases well funny you should mention an artist because i was once interviewing william friedkin and he says you never finish a film they just take it away from you and he liked the story yeah. of some famous painter who was caught at a gallery painting and it, he was he, he decided there was a corner that he didn't like, and he'd come in and he'd brought his paints and he was trying to touch it up. And they were like, "No, no, you know, it's already an exhibit." And he's like, "No, no, no, this one I can fix it. I can fix it." And unfortunately, sometimes, like you're saying, these guys are their own worst enemy for that sort of thing. At this time, it was Friedkin had done a movie called Rampage, and then it had sat on a shelf for a couple of years, and he swore he could fix it if he could shoot new footage, and he put more stuff in. It didn't make it any better. It was just awful. But he was definitely one of those guys that, like, you know, when Lucas wants to muck with his old films and screw those up, too, sometimes I think taking away from them is a good idea. <laughs> yes. At least Coppola, when he's releasing all of these, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff, he's showing, he's allowing the original version to be shown, which I appreciate. Though I wonder how much we can say is an original version of, of uh, Apocalypse Now since we've been talking about different endings and different cuts of this stuff. Yeah. Well, I've got another one of those, too. Do you remember the movie Revolution with Al Pacino? Yes. Everyone hated that. I thought there were some interesting elements, and the director said, let me take another crack at it. He put in some god-awful narration and made it worse. It wasn't easy. He made it significantly worse. Right, but see, all of this, you know, because it's all... Always fun to talk to two cinephiles like uh, you and Mike Paul, but I always think it's like the exception that proves the rule. Everyone still wants to strike the same gold that Blade Runner struck because I still prefer the second edit that Ridley Scott did to Blade Runner, but that's the exception that proves the rule. Like one guy took a near masterpiece and I think actually when he finally had full editorial control released the most watchable version of his own film but since then everyone else mocks with their films and and just the same magic just is not happening on these other films and part of it is in Ridley Scott's case was taking out something the voiceover that was forced on him Coppola had full 
director's control on Apocalypse Now. So in 79, he wasn't being interfered with. So it wasn't even like Touch of Evil with Murch's Reconstruction, which is another example of a film saved by um, actually executing the director's original vision. But films like Apocalypse Now, where he had full control in 79, I am still going to go to the mat saying in 79 he made really great decisions that i'm still comfortable with 37 years later and he should just leave that alone and not pick at that scab it's not a perfect film and yet it is in my absolute top 10 because it is it is the greatest mess of a film ever made (laughs) yeah you know usually the narration is forced on him like you're saying like uh Something like two Jakes. You know, Nicholson had a mess on his hands, so we thought he could fix it with narration. Blade Runner, they thought they could fix it with narration. When it's first written, you know, like Sunset Boulevard or something, it's wonderful. And you can tell when it's tacked on. I want to be really, really cynical right now and talk about just the way that, you know, you were talking about the the Godfather, a novel for television, and we've been talking about Redux and all these different versions of The Outsiders and Rumblefish and all this st- kind of stuff. I remember a fantastic, and I wish I could find this this uh, drawing. Somebody had done a drawing. It was in Entertainment Weekly probably back in the late 90s, and it was Francis Ford Coppola in front of a cow, and he's milking the cow, and all these you know coins and dollars are coming out of it, and the cow has Marlon Brando's face on it. And it was just this whole idea of how many fucking times are we going to get another Godfather recut, you know, and it's going to come out on every single medium that we have. And he just kept cutting it and cutting it different ways and doing all this kind of stuff. And to me, that's almost what Redux was doing was, okay, well, you have this version. Well, now you want this other one. Well, now you want this other one. But yet he never really gave us exactly what we wanted, which was just give me a goddamn standalone disc of all the stuff that was in that five-hour cut. And yeah, yeah, maybe we can decide what we want to do with it. But just leave alone the original one. I didn't didn't need to have the this new version. But at least, like I was saying before, we have the original and we have the Redux. So we can kind of, in our minds, we can maybe remix this kind of stuff. And thank God we do have fan editors out there that can do this stuff. And everybody can be a fan editor. So if we wanted to, we can make our own choice. But I would still like to have the original raw materials and have a nice version of some of those things that never made it into the redux version, you know, just, just let me go in and pick the dailies that I want. Yeah. Rich, I agree with what you're saying about Godfather too. When they did it sequentially, I thought the De Niro scenes dragged just a little and the Pacino scenes didn't have the, the depth that they seemed to when they were cross cutting between. And interestingly, I heard, Robert Evans used to insist that the Godfather 2, the first cut that he turned in, they would cut back and forth about every three to five minutes. And he said it was just horrible. He, he made him go back. And, yeah. But that's Evans taking credit for something, too. But uh, take, huh. take that Does he ever do anything else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also love his film Chinatown. <laughs> he saved the studio single-handedly with his... Uh, Great, uh, you yeah, know, fuck that Robert Town guy. He had nothing to do with it either. Hey, Robert yeah, Town was, was great, but he's been taking a victory lap for a long <laughs> time now. Well, he, he's been Tom Cruise's <laughs> bitch for the last 20 years. <laughs> One of my favorite things is 
a good parody of something. And I have been an admirer of really good parodies of the apocalypse now for years. I actually wrote a thing a few years ago where I tried to pull together some of my favorite parodies of this. And there was a, to give credit where credit is due, there was a comic that was drawn about Charlie bucket going back into the, the chocolate factory and killing Willy Wonka and stuff. So that, that there is a really good version of that out there. But, um, I have to say that I am amazed by the creativity of some of these parodies. And for me, and I'm I'm curious what your guys' favorites are, but for me, I think my favorite parody of Apocalypse Now was the one that came out a fucking year afterwards, a 20-minute parody shot by the same guy who did Hardware Wars, uh, Ernie Facilius, called Porklips Now. And this thing, I still quote from this movie all these years later and i think every time i see it i i gain a little bit more appreciation for it as just how brilliant they parodied the original film did they say why dullard the uh, <laughs> yeah pork lips now we watched over and over and we got to quoting it so much i've now like lost track where apocalypse ends and pork lips begins because you know uh-huh. they i I see no method acting at all. I mean, so many great <laughs> quotes in that movie. <laughs> On the other hand, I hadn't seen this one. Uh, is Pack of Gifts now, is that the one to kill Santa Claus? Very well done. Obviously a much bigger budget. Uh, and done, what was for Mad TV, perhaps? Yeah, it was for Mad TV. I want to say it was uh, Corky Quackenbush put that together. He did a whole series of these kind of Rankin-Bass parodies he did one that was like goodfellas he did another one that was like the godfather can you sense the theme here and then he did a pack of gifts now and oh my god just so many good things and that's what like six minutes long but they encapsulate the whole story it was so good i couldn't believe they wanted this man dead adored by children all over the world the more i read about him the more i admired him He could have made millions, but he went for the kids instead. Hello. Dog's laid off the port bow. Bring him in. Check it out, chef. It's spot on. I think we need to include, too, the the Simpsons did that episode where Mr. Burns acts like Captain Kurtz, too. It's like a summer camp, and um, Bart has gone, and Burns takes over the camp, and he just goes insane, and by the end of the episode... Um, Bart has makeup on his face and he's acting all tribal. Yeah, you got to check that out. I know it's a little uh, late in the podcast to be going meta, but I didn't really like you guys. I haven't watched a lot of these parodies. I did see the ones you sent me the links for, and I really enjoyed them. But my meta comment about this is, to me, that's just a testament of how deeply Apocalypse Now is in our culture now. I love films like Apocalypse Now where you can make the parody and you just can assume everyone's in on the joke. And and that was not going to be a given. I mean, I still like going back to 1979 and I can still now picture Paul in that theater. And this was a type of film that could have been Heaven's Gate. This could have been a film like Ishtar that was really seen just for for the sum of its flaws and not for the sum of its greatness. And it, it and that historically now it has tipped the other way, that it has an iconic standing in American cinema and is now widely seen 
if not as a masterpiece as I see it, just as a very, very important American film. Um, that's why I think it's so ripe for parody. And then also, it's a point that goes back to something I said a while ago in the podcast. I think the seeds of the parody were already in it. Kilgore is about as parodic a kernel as you could make. Um, this is a film that already had New Orleans chefs on a boat with San Diego surfers, with a 14-year-old Lawrence Fishburne <laughs> playing Mr. Clean. I still don't know how the hell a 14-year-old kid <laughs> got into uh, the boat, but I think that's just part of the lore of uh, Apocalypse Now. And that, that's what I love about it. I love the fact of films that become such powerful cultural touchstones that we feel the desire to extend our imagination into the world of spoofs and parodies. I, I just love it all. One of the things that I love about Pork Clips now is that it showed to me because I, I was I've always been aware of Apocalypse Now. It came out when I was like what seven years old or something. So it's just always kind of been there. It's never been, you know, as as much of a part of my life as like a Star Wars or something. But it's just it felt like Apocalypse Now has just always been around. But over the years, I've forgotten certain things, like this whole whole idea of the showing it can with the multiple endings and all these kind of things, and poor clips now parodies that and manages to you know bring that into there i mean that the film this 20 minute parody starts with a silhouette of francis ford coppola you know the, as portrayed by by uh the director himself uh welcome to the screening ladies and gentlemen uh, i'm the director i'd like to make just a few brief comments before we start while you're watching the film i don't want you thinking about the 40 million dollars that were spent and the millions and millions of feet of film that were shot over a period of four agonizing years just put that stuff right out of your mind it's all in your program anyway i think it's uh what volume seven i especially don't want you thinking about the analogy of the story to my own life the fact that i risked my personal fortune and professional reputation to make this movie and that i too was making a voyage up the creek without a paddle well that, don't be thinking about that stuff just relax and enjoy the film by the way the running time is seven hours and 29 minutes and then brings him back when they break the film and he's like okay you know, i shot a lot of end endings for this i'm still working on things and they show him like you know cutting things right there <laughs> and then they have a choose your own ending adventure basically you know with these three different things including one which is a nod to the godfather where kurtz puts a, a uh, orange in his mouth and starts being a monkey and then he has a heart attack and dies <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. Now, the other one, Hearts of Twilight, that was the Warner Brother cartoon, right? Didn't care for that one. And then uh, Apocalypse Pooh has been around forever. That was one of those, like, you know, Robert Tilton farting videos where you would just, like, get the, the, you know, the, the VHS tape from whoever, and it would have Apocalypse Pooh on there. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. And I can't hear... Dennis Hopper's laugh without thinking of tickets. I know, everything is all mixed together now in our subconscious. And I know there's more good ones out there, but yeah, those were the ones that, that really tickled me over the years, especially Pack of Gifts Now and uh, and, and Pork Lips Now. You just like saying Pork Lips Now, let's just be <laughs> honest. I, mean, <laughs> I do, I do. But, I mean, yeah, when I watch Apocalypse Now, when he says, never get out of the boat, I always then I think, never get out of the car. Absolutely gosh darn right. Not unless he had to go to the bathroom. Never get out of the car. Mertz got out of the car. And then he got out of the car business. Got into the meat business. 
Then he started giving the business to his competitors. Fantastic. Incredible. Unbelievable. It's Mertz's Meat Market grand opening sale, and Madman Mertz has obviously gone totally insane. We're slashing prices with a straight razor. That's right. Just listen to these unbelievable low prices. Lobster tails, only 15 cents a bushel. Filet mignon, only 8 cents a pound. And whole sides of beef at the incredible low price of 99 cents. Come on down. Valuable door prices for the whole family and free bologna for the kids. You can't afford not to be down here right now taking advantage of these totally insane prices. It's incredible. They butchered pig after pig, cow after cow. Chicken after chicken. Yes, we're completely overstocked, so come on down today, right now. Versus Meat Market, Chinatown. We'll see you here. Bye, kids. All right, should I run down all the people that I tried to interview for this show that, that wouldn't give me the time of day? Please. Actually, some of them did give me the time of day. I, I tried to to uh, uh, talk to Fred Ruse, one of the producers, and he's just been, like, ducking me. He, he, he made the mistake of responding to my email, and uh, so I'm just, like, every three months I've been, like, are, are, you, are you free now? We, just 20 minutes of your time. That's all I need. Uh, I'm still not sure if I want to do this. I'm just like, what? <laughs> just give me a yes or no. Don't tell me I'm not sure I want to do this. Uh-huh. I've talked about my struggle with Colleen Camp on the Death Game episode. And yeah, she's just not having it. I talk- why, is she, why is she so tough? I don't know what's going on. She's, I mean, I don't want to be catty, but really what, flaky. Gonna... I'll just put it out there. She's super flaky. And it's just like, you know, okay, I'll do this interview on Tuesday at, at 3 o'clock. Okay, great. Tuesday at 3 o'clock comes, nothing ever happens. And it's just like, what's going on? And then I'll email. It's like, oh, yeah, I had a dentist appointment. It's like, okay. So I, I've set up probably six or seven interviews with her over literally a three-year period. No. Nothing. Okay, how about Frederick Forrest? Frederick Forrest, I got a message back from his agent, and he said, uh, so we need to talk about payment. How much would this pay? (laughs) And I said, ah, we don't make any money here on the projection booth. I'm sorry. Oh, wait a minute. That means I'm not getting a check? (laughs) I did get an email from Merch's person, and that's been going on for probably about nine months it was hilarious. I got an email the other day. I, I emailed this guy and then I got an email back within an hour and it said, Walter, what do you want to do about this? It's not going away. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote and I said, I'm sorry, but I think you wrote to me instead of to Mr. Merch. It was like, Oh, sorry about that. I'm like, yeah, okay. This isn't happening. Michael Hare. I never heard back. Of course, Martin Sheen. I never heard back. So yeah, tried, tried a whole bunch of people. So I'm really glad that Faxbar talked to me and, and I really respect that and appreciate that. So it was, uh, it's interesting because there's so many good people from this film that are either now out of my league, like a Martin Sheen, which is bizarre because I've seen some of his recent made for, you know, direct to DVD stuff, which has just been garbage, but he's still out of my league. Coppola's out of my league. Coppola, his person did respond and was like, try me back in this month. I wrote back, try me back in six more months. I, I wrote back. And then finally I just stopped getting response. <laughs> in the interview, did Fax talk about, um, I believe it was him that had the story about approaching Brando on the movie, the freshman. Cause he wanted them. To, I used to have this column called that darn Brando. And it was, I would take, like famous Brando and not so famous stories and make them in like a single panel cartoon. So I believe, I don't think it was George Hickett Looper. I think it was facts that called me. This is while I was still in Detroit. And he said that 
you know, when they were doing Hearts of Darkness, he really wanted to get Brando to do a you know on camera interview. So he kept circling around him, and he would wait for him to come out of his trailer on the on the freshman. And um, he would figure out, like, there'd be so many seconds that he might have an opportunity to get in his way or get in his face. So after a bunch of aborted attempts, he finally got right up to him. And uh, he said, Brando just stopped and shook his hands back and forth, back and forth. He said, no, no, you, you don't understand. I I hate Francis Coppola. I, I hate Francis. <laughs> so, so I turned that into a cartoon. <laughs> so it gets when they're out. Now, I should add a little addendum to my story. George Hickenlooper got us that tape, like I said, that we got the rough cut from. Some years later, Francis produced a movie for him. So I think whatever it was, they made up. So it's got a happy ending. And it has the happy ending, too, that that tape somehow got out into the world, and we can now see it. Yeah, so like the rough cut, wouldn't that be something on YouTube that Zoetrope would complain about and ask them to take it down? You would think so. All right, guys, let's take one more break, and we're going to play a trailer for next week's show. You have never seen anything like it. A bona fide guaranteed attraction. The only act of its kind in the world today. See that beautiful girl. She's in here now. And alive. You've never seen anything like it. Let's go now. Pay a visit. See the sleeping beauty. Get your tickets. One dollar pays the way. The very thought of you. The sleeping beauty, ladies and gentlemen. He is no exaggeration. And I forget to do the enigma that has baffled medical scientists. The little ordinary thing. Does she indeed have feelings? That everyone ought to do. Is our beauty dreaming? I'm living in. Or is she simply a kind of daydream? Asleep. I'm happy as a king. I feel it's all a dream, you know, like like I'm not completely awake yet. I wonder if this isn't a dream, too. I don't remember when I fell asleep, but it couldn't have been too long after when I had a dream. A man, someone I'd never seen before, was kissing me. I don't know how he got there or anything, but he, he was kissing me and I couldn't seem to do anything to stop him. Then he would stop and go away. And there'd be nothing. For a long time there'd be nothing. All I know is we call her the Sleeping Beauty because A, she is asleep and B, she is beautiful. If you think you are a Prince Charming who can make it where medical science failed by awakening our sleeping beauty with a kiss, let him put his dollar up in the air and step right up. Come on, you he-men. You good sports? I was helpless to stop it. At first I tried, but, but soon I didn't want it to stop. Because then there'd be the nothing again. I dreamed that someone was kissing me. And this feeling would come over me. In this dream, lots of strange men would kiss me and touch me. And I couldn't stop them. And it would stop in nothing. Don't you see that the dreams were all for you? He who awakens, sleeping beauty, is in danger of awakening himself. Just the thought of you, the very thought of you, my love. I bought a sleeping beauty. She's in the other room. 
I'm waiting for her to wake up. I thought you ought to know. That's right. Next week, we will be talking about James Harris's Some Call It Loving. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guests, Rich and Paul. Paul, what have you been up to lately? Entertainment journalism is so shitty now, I like to say I'm semi-retired, but I've been finishing up the second volume of my book of interviews with uh, first-time directors. These will include what we call unsung heroes, like Jeff Versig, who did the movie about Daniel Johnston, Lee Tamahori, Crispin Glover, Harmony Green, the Polish twins, the boys from Blair Witch Project, and Andrew Dominic with his first film, Chopper. And then I also have a little subcategory called Second Time Lucky. And these are filmmakers that usually wanted their first films to disappear, and they would pretend like their breakthrough film was actually their first film. So that Todd Solens? He's at the top of the list because <laughs> he wanted to burn his original film. Doug Lyman had done a movie before Swingers that he once forgotten. Danny Boyle had done uh, Shallow Grave, which he doesn't uh, want to go away. It's just train spotting was more the, the breakthrough. And for Chris Smith, it was American movie. And then of course, Terry Zweigoff had done a one hour documentary called Louis Bluey before he blew up with crumb. So he's still proud of that movie. I'm not trying to lump him in with these ones like Todd Salons who would like all the prints to be burned, but um, I'm finishing that up right now. Yeah. No wonder Todd Salons won't answer my interview requests for fear, anxiety, and depression. How about you, Rich? You always lead such an exciting life of the mind. I want to know what you're up to. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of stuff. I wish I could um, talk about a couple of the projects that I'm working on, but I can't at the moment. But I do hope if people uh, are aware of some of the projects I do with my collaborator, Shannon Kluge, you can always find out about our latest um, projects on noircast.net, or you could follow me on Twitter at redwords7, that R-E-D-W-A-R-D-S-7, because I usually announce my projects when I'm allowed to do so. But I have a bunch of uh, big things coming up in the fall. Um, It's just too soon to announce them in June. Um, But uh, just check out my various other channels, and I'll be able to let people know what I'm up to. Uh, I'll always involve something around film and education, because that's what I tend to do in my day job. So that's about it for, for me. You know, you will be happy to know, Rich, that I know at least three or four people that took your noir class, the one through uh, yes. the TCM. I, I, that was just a blast. It was a blessing to be able to teach a course on film noir that had 21,000 students in it. That that was oh. a pleasure last year. You know, And like I said, people who are interested in that type of stuff, because that is what I do, I tend to uh, bring together my two passions, um, education and film all the time. And I have a couple things in the work. I just can't announce them yet, but uh, definitely check out, you know, find me on the web. There'll be announcements coming in the next, uh, hopefully coming months, uh, probably no later than end of June. It must have been a real bitch to grade 21,000 papers, though. Yeah, you would you would imagine. One student in the course, my favorite line was, uh, one student in the course, because we used um, TCM's message boards to um, write up analyses of the films that were in the TCM festival that we were producing the equivalent of an entire of, of an entire novel of new information every day in the course because we had so many students posting so yeah it was an amazing just uh, and that archive still exists if you go to tcm.com and look up summer of darkness you can uh, see what that what we did last year in 2015 around film noir and we're hoping to do it again in the near future 
thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening to us, uh, Joe, on for so long. If you want to repay for all this free entertainment, go on over to our Patreon page and make a donation. You'll just feel better about yourself.
the problem with your generation, Mike, is your Vietnam was Star Wars. My Vietnam was going to see The Phantom Menace in the theater. That's why I have no sympathy for some dumb schmuck that won't go see Ghostbusters the remake. It's just like fuck you, kid. You didn't. You didn't see the shit. You didn't see Jar Jar step in the shit, man. You don't know anything about this, man. Oh, no. it, it is the middle word of life. <laughs> If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.